Preface of the Necessity of Atheism Plain speaking is necessary in any discussion of religion. For if the freethinker attacks the religious dogmas with hesitation, the orthodox believer assumes that it is with regret that the freethinker would remove the crutch that supports the orthodox. And all religious beliefs are crutches, hindering the free locomotive efforts of an advancing humanity. There are no problems related to human progress and happiness in this age which any theology can solve, and which the teachings of free thought cannot do better and without the aid of encumbrances. Havelock Ellis has stated that the man who has never wrestled with his early faith, the faith that he was brought up with, and that yet is not truly his own, for no faith is our own that we have not arduously won, has missed not only a moral but an intellectual discipline. The absence of that discipline may mark a man for life and render all his work ineffective. He has missed a training in criticism, in analysis, in open-mindedness, in the resolutely impersonal treatment of personal problems, which no other training can compensate. He is, for the most part, condemned to live in a mental jungle, where his arm will soon be too feeble to clear away the growths that enclose him, and his eyes too weak to find the light. The man who has allowed his mental capacities to clear his way through the dense underbrush of religious dogma finds that he has emerged into a purer and healthier atmosphere. In the bright light of this mental emancipation, a man perceives the falsities of all religions in their historic, scientific, and metaphysical aspects. The healthier mental viewpoint holds up to scorn and disregards the reactionary religious philosophy of morals, and the sum total of his conclusions must be that religion is doomed and doomed in this modern day by its absolute irrelevance to the needs and interests of modern life, and this not only by the steadily increasing army of free thinkers, but by the indifference and neglect of those who still cling to the fast-slipping folds of religious creeds, the future free thinkers. It was Spinoza who remarked that the proper study of a wise man is not how to die but how to live. Religious creeds can but teach how man should live, so that when he dies he may be assured of salvation. And the important thing is not what he does to help his fellow men while he is living, but how closely he lives in conformity to a reactionary code of dogmas. Religion has always aimed to smooth the sufferer's passage to the next world, not to save him for this world. Free thought has dethroned the gods from the pedestal, and has replaced not an empty idol, but an ideal, the ideal of a man who is his own god. It has become increasingly apparent that what men have hitherto attributed to the gods are nothing more but the ideals they value and grope for in themselves. The ideal of the free thinker the conception that places the supreme worth of human life in the expanding horizon of man's usefulness to man is forever menaced by the supernaturalism of the theist, which manifests itself in the multifarious religious sects that are the most active and constant menace to civilization and to mankind today.
that religion in the past has produced suffering incalculable and has been the greatest obstacle in the advance of secular knowledge is a fact too well attested to by history to be denied by any sincere and unbiased intelligent man. That today it constitutes a cultural lag, an active menace to the best interests of humanity and the last refuge of human savagery is the contention of the free thinker. The conception of the God idea, as held by society in general, stands in the same position as the vermiform appendix does to the anatomy of man. It may have been useful in some way thousands of years ago, but today it constitutes a detriment to the well-being of the individual without offering any compensatory usefulness. Agree or disagree with this contention you may but only when you are made aware of the facts that can be brought to the aid of this conviction. Just as the fundamental principle of justice is outraged when a man or an institution is condemned by jurist or popular opinion, when an opportunity is not given to present the facts on both aspects of the case, just so is no man justified in making a decision between theism and atheism until he becomes acquainted with both sides of the controversy. Free thought but asks a hearing, and the exercise of the unbiased reason of the man who has not hitherto been made aware of its contentions. In the religious revolution of this twentieth century, the battleground is squarely seen to be between supernaturalism and secularism. Although the supernaturalists are well entrenched and fortified, it is well to remember that it is the man with vision who finally prevails. The time has passed when the free thinker could be held up to the community as an example of a base and degraded individual. No manner of pulpit drivel can delude even the unthinking masses to this misconception. The free thinker is today the one who beholds the vision, and this vision does not transcend the natural. It is a vision that is earth-bound, a vision it may be called, since it leaps the boundary of the present, and infers for him what the future of a secular organization of the entire constituency of humanity will bring forth. This vision is but a product of his scientific armamentarium, and is the means by which he is assured of victory over the well-entrenched and fortified position of the supernaturalists who are still creed-bound to use antiquated and useless weapons. The supernaturalist's armamentarium of God, Bible, Heaven, Hell, Soul, Immortality, Sin, the Fall and Redemption of Man, Prayer, Creed, and Dogma, leave as much impression on the mind of intelligent man as would an arrow against a battleship. And the comparison is apt the supernaturalists have made full use of force, be it in physical warfare or in mental coercion. The free thinker has as much use for physical force and war as he has for mental coercion. Both are abhorrent to him. Supernaturalism versus secularism. That and that alone is the field of argument. The supernaturalist be he the fundamentalist of whatever denomination, or the more advanced modernist, is as tenaciously clinging to the transcendental, to revelation, to the infallibility of the Bible, if not in all respects, at least in some, 
although this is a contradiction per se, to the interdisposition of a deity in the affairs of mankind, as were his ancestors of 500 years ago. In these aspects, as well as in the armamentarium enumerated above, the supernaturalists are agreed and are making their last stand. The secularists, the opinion of the theists to the contrary, are also agreed. It matters not what a man calls his mental process, be he infidel, skeptic, rationalist, agnostic, or atheist, he is firm in the conviction that religions of all varieties are rapidly sinking into the limbo of all other ancient superstitions. To him, it is but a matter of time for the inevitable crumbling and disappearance of these superstitions, and the time involved is directly proportional to the ease and rapidity with which scientific knowledge is disseminated to men who have the mental capacity to understand the value of this knowledge and its utter destruction of all forms of supernaturalism. When man becomes fully cognizant of the fact that all the knowledge acquired by the human race has been the result of human inquiry, the result of reasoning processes and the exercise of mind alone, then secularism will have overcome the long night of supernaturalism. And it is this mental attitude of secularism that proceeds with an ever-accelerated rapidity to overcome the problems that confront humanity by substituting human inquiry for divine revelation. Thus, this attitude of man to proceed through life dependent only on his own resources will expand and strengthen his mentality by doing away with the inferiority complex of the God idea. This vision of man, the master of his own destinies, the searcher for truth, and the shaper of a better life for the only existence that he knows anything about, this reliance of man upon man, and without the supposed interference of any god, constitutes atheism in its broadest and true sense. Science and reason, the constituents of secularism, are the mortal enemies of supernaturalism. Secularism, however, is at a disadvantage at this stage of our mental development, since it is approached only by the calm light of the intellect. An intellect can but make an appeal to reason. If the seeds of these appeals fall on the fertile minds of mentally advanced humanity, they will flourish. If they fall on the barren ground of creed-bound minds, they take no root. Recognition of facts and honest deductions are not natural to the human mind. As far as religious matters are concerned, the vast majority of men have not reached a mental maturity. They are still in the infantile state where they have not as yet learned that the sequences of events are not to be interrupted by their desires. The easier path lies in the giving way to the unstable emotions. The primitive instincts are for emotion and for loose imaginings, and these are the provinces of supernaturalism. Supernaturalism arouses the stupid interests and the brutish passions and from these are born the bitter fruits of ignorance and hatred. The secularist is one in whom the intellect is passionate, and the passions cold. The supernaturalist, on the other hand, reverses the order, and in him the passions are alive and the intellect inert. 
In each man there dwells a tyrant who creates for him a deity materialized out of these factors of ignorance and fear. It is science and reason which must destroy for him this monstrous apparition. But as yet, there is no indication that our mental development in relation to social progress has made the great strides that our purely material progress has made. The twentieth-century man utilizes and enjoys the material benefits of his century, but his mental progress lies bound and drugged by the viewpoints of two thousand years ago. Sir Leslie Stephen has declared, how much intellect and zeal runs to waste in the spasmodic efforts of good men to cling to the last fragment of decaying systems, to galvanize dead formulae into some dim semblance of life. Society will not improve as it might when those who should be leaders of progress are staggering backward and forward with their eyes passionately reverted to the past. Nay, we shall never be duly sensitive to the miseries and cruelties which make the world a place of torture for so many, so long as men are encouraged in the name of religion to look for a remedy. Not in fighting against surrounding evils, but in cultivating aimless contemplations of an imaginary ideal. Much of our popular religion seems to be expressly directed to deaden our sympathies with our fellow men by encouraging an indolent optimism. Our thoughts of the other world are used in many forms as an opiate to drug our minds with indifference to the evils of this, and the last word of half of our preachers is dream rather than work. There is always a great deal of discrepancy between that which is best for the gods and that which is best for the individual and for society in general. One cannot serve man perfectly and the traditional gods as well. It is therefore the contention of free thinkers that if man had given to the service of man all that he had given to the gods in the past, our present stage of civilization would be much in advance of where it is today. If there is anything in the discussion to follow that may seem irrelevant to the reader, the author wishes to call attention that he has but presented well-substantiated facts. It is not only his opinion that he is voicing, but it is the facts as he has found them recorded in the researches of numerous sincere men. Finally, it is the conviction of all freethinkers that, as Professor James H. Luba has stated, it is furthermore essential to intellect and moral advances that the beliefs that come into existence should have free play. Antagonistic beliefs must have the chance of proving their worth in open contest. In this way, scientific theories are tested and in this way also religious and ethical conceptions should be tried. But a fair struggle cannot take place when people are dissuaded from seeking knowledge or when knowledge is hidden. The cultivation of the intellect is a duty that is imposed on all men. Even those who still cling to the dying beliefs must admit the force of what Winwood Reed said. To cultivate the intellect is therefore a religious duty. And when this truth is fairly recognized by men, the religion which teaches that the intellect should be distrusted and that it should be subservient to faith will inevitably fall. When the principles of free thought shall have dispelled the intellectual cloud of the God idea and the vanishing dream of a heaven which has too long drawn men's eyes away from this earth, 
then, and then only, will these words of Cicero have widespread meaning. Men were born for the sake of men, that each should assist the others. End of Preface Chapter 1 of The Necessity of Atheism The Evolution of Religious Beliefs To early man, the gods were real, in the same sense that the mountains, forests, or waterfalls, which were thought to be their homes, were real. For a long time, the spirits that lived in drugs or wines and made them potent were believed to be of the same order of fact as the potency itself. But the human creature is curious, and curiosity is bold. Hence the discovery that a reported god may be a myth. Max Carl Otto The geologists estimate that the age of the earth is somewhere between 80 and 800 millions of years, that the Neanderthal race existed for more than 200,000 years, that between 40,000 and 25,000 years ago, as the fourth glacial period softened towards more temperate conditions, a different human type came upon the scene and exterminated Homo neanderthalensis. These first true men descended from some more ape-like progenitors and are classified by ethnologists with the same species as ourselves, and with all human races subsequent to them under one common specific term. Homo sapiens. The age of cultivation began with the Neolithic phase of human affairs about 10,000 or 12,000 years ago. About 6,000 or 7,000 years ago, men began to gather into the first towns and to develop something more than the loose-knit tribes which had hitherto been their highest political organization. Altogether, there must have elapsed about 500,000 years from the earliest ape-like human stage of life on this planet to the present time. It necessarily follows that the age of our present civilization is by no means that which the Bible stipulates, but is merely an atom in the vast space-time of this earth. The reason for this disparity is that, with the development of the mind of man throughout the ages, there was conceived also his self-made religious systems, based on a subjective interpretation of the universe and not on an objective one, devoid of emotional bias. Primitive man did not understand the natural cause of shadows, echoes, the birth and death of vegetable and animal organisms. Of this ignorance religion was born and theology was evolved as its art of expression. Draper Our story takes us back some 12,000 years to Neolithic man. Squatting in his rude hovel or gloomy cave, he listens to the sounds of a storm without. The howling of the wind, the flashes of lightning, the crashing of thunder give rise to that elemental emotion, fear. Fear was always with him, as he thought of the huge stones that fell and crushed him, and the beasts which were so eager to devour him, all things about him seemed to conspire for his death. The wind, lightning, thunder, rain, and storm, as well as the beasts and falling trees, for in his mind he did not differentiate animate from inanimate objects. 
slowly, through his groping mind, there evolved the thought, due to past experience, that he could not contend with these things by physical force, but must subdue them with magic. His magic consisted of the beating of crude drum-like instruments, dances, and the mumbling of words. Upon falling asleep, he dreams, and awakening, he finds that he is still in the same place where he had lain the night before. Yet he is certain that during the night he had traveled to his favorite wood and killed an animal, whose tender flesh he was still savoring. Since the conception of a dream was as yet foreign to him, the logical conclusion he arrived at was that he had both a body and a spirit. If he possessed a body and a spirit, then all things about him, he reasoned, must likewise possess a similar spirit. Some spirits he felt were friendly, some hostile to him. The hostile spirits were to be feared, but that powerful factor, hope, had at last entered into his mind, and he hoped to be able to win them over to the camp of friendly spirits. In this manner, man passed from the stage of contending against the spirits to one of placating them. It was believed that certain men carried more favor with the spirits than others, and these became the original priests, called the shamans. Another expedient for warding off evil spirits was by means of the fetish. The primitive fetish was an object containing an active, friendly spirit, which, if worn by the individual, protected him from the evil spirits. In a short while, the manufacture of fetishes became a sacred profession, and the men who were thought to fashion the best ones became the professional holy men of the period, the priests. At first, idols were used to drive away the evil spirits, and then the conception changed to one of attracting the good spirits to man. From the individual fetish, man passed to tribal ones, which in their first form were huge boulders and trees. As the primitive mind gained cunning, it slyly smeared the surface of the idol with oily substances, hoping that the spirit, like some wild beast, would come and lick, be gratified, and remain in the idol. When some favorable signs denoted that a good spirit had entered into the idol, it was regularly smeared with oils and then blood, in the hope that the spirit would be pleased sufficiently to remain there permanently. As time went on, it became a custom, a rite, and the spirit having performed to the satisfaction of the tribe, ways were invented to manifest their gratitude. Instead of smearing the idol with blood, it was thought more fitting that an animal be killed and offered to the good spirit contained within the idol. In this manner arose the beginning of sacrifice. It was at this time, when man began to persuade the idols or spirits to do things for his benefit, that religion began. Slowly, slowly, down through the ages, as the mind of man progressed, his self-made religious conceptions advanced. He now worshipped idols, and these idols were his gods. The Celts, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all had their idols. All were certain that their gods were the true ones, and that the others were all inferior and even false gods. But is the modern worshipper who is contemptuous of the ancients very different from them? The centuries pass by, and in their wake is man's self-conceived religion. 
now some men take the prerogative in the manufacture of religion, and there evolve Brahmanism, Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, and Zoroastrianism, all inspired, all supernatural, and with their myriads of followers who believed and still believe that theirs is the only true creed. Very recently, in the timescale of our development, man adopted the methods of big business, and the religion of many gods and idols, polytheism, has given way to one supreme god, monotheism. Man found that it made for simplicity and saved his valuable time if he worshipped one god instead of obeying the hitherto many. The chosen people took it upon themselves to bring the next divinely concocted conception of a supreme god, and they manufactured the creed of Judaism. After many years, a rift arose among the Jews, and the sectarians were defeated and expelled. Foiled in their first object, they cast aside the laws of Moses and offered the Hebrew religion without the Hebrew ceremonies to the Greek and Roman world. Jesus was the man who prepared the way for this remarkable event. When Mohammed conceived the divine conception that he would follow in the footsteps of his brother prophets Moses and Jesus, the latest of the major religions was revealed. At the present time, the Hebrews and Christians, although worshipping the same Jehovah, are disputing with each other, and indeed amongst themselves, with regard to the various attributes, amorous pursuits, and lineal descendants of the Godhead. Jehovah himself appears to be on the decline, and his unity is steadily disintegrating into a paradoxical trinity. But we are progressing, for in 1,300 years no new prophet has arisen, and no new divine revelation is perturbing our race. The old ones, however, are causing quite enough disturbance. It would be of value for the modern religionist who believes that the worship of a deity in our own age is far removed from the worship of an idol by our savage ancestors, to retrace his steps and compare the savage mind worshipping his particular idol and the so-called civilized mind of today worshipping his deity. The savage prayed to his idol, that is, he begged. He begged the idol to watch over his flocks or his fields. The modern prays, that is, he begs of his idol, his deity, to prosper his business, to guard his life, and, as one of my super-devout acquaintances recently informed me on the eve of an important golf match, for the deity to give him endurance, in other words, to cut down his golf score. The savage voiced his incantations, the modern sings hymns, that is, he flatters, there is still a great deal of the charlatanry of the magician in the construction of the houses of prayer, with the sunlight shut out and only filtering through the leaded and multicolored panes, the semi-darkness, the solemnity, the rise and swell of the organ, all things combined to overcome the senses, to play upon the emotions, and to subdue the reason. The savage made sacrifices to his idols, that is, he paid tribute, chiefly out of fear, but partly in the hope of getting something better in return. The modern does not offer human or animal sacrifice, it is true, but it must be borne in mind that the wealth of the savage consisted of his sheep, oxen, oils, and wines, not money. Today the devout offer a sacrifice of money to the deity, 
We are all familiar with the requests of religious institutions for gifts, which nearly always finish with the phrase, and the Lord will repay you with many fold. In other words, sacrifice part of your worldly goods to the idol, and he will repay with high interest. He will give in return long life and much riches. The savage was afraid to utter the real name of his god. It was taboo. The modern says, take not the name of the Lord in vain. Even today, the followers of Moses consider it taboo to utter the name of Jehovah except in prayer. The present-day methods of worship are no different from those of the savage. The method of supplication has changed with the advance of the years, but the fundamental ideas at the base of all worship are just as crude today as they were 4,000 years ago. Primitive man was no more a fetishist than is the modern Catholic. The latter still wears medals and images suspended from the neck and pinned to the inner clothing. Moreover, a survey of the various religions extant indicates that the religious factor is no less prevalent today than it was in primitive societies. In Greenland, one finds that through nearly all of its vast area, religion has no place, but that is chiefly the result of its being largely uninhabited. In Alaska, the population is for the most part Catholic, although the natives are animists. In Canada, 33% are Catholic, the rest are mainly Protestant. In the United States, 20% are Catholic, 3.5% are Jewish, and the remainder are Protestants. Mexico, Central and South America are almost entirely Roman Catholic. In Europe, Russia was until recently dominantly Greek Orthodox, the Scandinavian Peninsula, the English Isles, and Central Europe are dominantly Protestant, while France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and the rest of the countries bordering the Mediterranean Sea are Catholic. The rest of the continent is divided between Jews and Mohammedans. In Asia, the entire vast area of Siberia is only sparsely settled, and its religions include animism, Taoism, and Christianity. In China, we find the land of three truths, Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. India, Tibet, and Burma are dominated by Hinduism and Buddhism. Arabia, Persia, and the rest of the continent are Mohammedan. In Japan, there are the Shintoists. The East Indies, where the population is native, are animistic. In Australia, the dominant religion is Protestantism. In North Africa, the West Coast inhabitants are Mohammedans, while the Abyssinians are Christians. There are still Coptic Christians in Egypt, while in the Congo and South African countries down to the Cape settlements, the natives are animists. The Cape settlements themselves are Protestants. More concretely, it is estimated that 10.7% of the inhabitants of the globe are Protestants. 16.2% are Catholics, 7.1% are Greek Orthodox, 10% are Animists, 1.4% are Shintoists, 18.2% are Confucians and Taoists, 12.8% are Hindus, 8.4% are Buddhists, 13.4% are Muslims, and 1.8% are Hebrews and unclassified sects. Truly a religious babble. 
and 10% of all the inhabitants of the globe, about the same number of people who profess to Protestantism, are animists. This is the lowest stage of primitive religion, and millions of humans are still quagmired in the sloth of a primitive faith which once must have been the faith of all human beings. The Mohammedan, the Jew, the Christian will readily agree that the animism, the fetishism, and idolatry of the savage were man-made foolish beliefs. They can readily perceive that there was nothing supernatural, nothing revealed in such beliefs. But they do not realize that to him, in his infantile development, the fetish and the idol were just as supernatural and superior as the modern conception of a supreme being. In each age, man creates his god, in his own image, and within the confines of his own mental development. The mind of man has expanded so that it has conquered more and more of his environment. It has grown and wrested from nature those secrets which constitute his civilization. Along with this has progressed the conception of a deity, but only to a certain extent. The mind has embellished the outward appearance of its gods, consolidated them, and built upon them intricate systems of theology upon which feed vast hordes of clergy. But the basic conception, the fundamental principle, that there must be something supernatural to explain something which we cannot explain at the present moment, that conception still drugs the mind of man. Primitive man did not understand the meaning of lightning, thunder, shadows, echoes, etc., and he placed these among the supernatural phenomena. The modern mind explains these phenomena, understands the laws governing their production. Yet, it is this same modern mind which persists in going back to our savage ancestors and their mental sloth, by attributing the myriads of phenomena which still elude its present stage of mental development to a particular idol, this time a supreme being. Brahmanism, Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, Hebrewism, Mohammedanism, Christianity, which is the true religion? Let us suppose for a moment that an inhabitant of Mars, if there be such, were by a miracle to be transported to this earth and endowed with the mental capacity of the average inhabitant of the earth, a thing which perhaps would not be so flattering to our guest, were to be approached by a zealot of each one of these faiths who hoped to convert this stranger to its ranks. Since the factor of coercion, by force of environment, to which each of these earthlings was subject, would naturally be absent, the Martian would be in a position to make a fair choice. How much would the visitor be impressed by the statements of the Christian, Mohammedan, or Jew, when advised that, unless he embraced their particular creed, he would be damned to eternal torture in their particular hell? If a Christian were to accost him and endeavor to put the fear of God into him, and if our visitor, being from Mars, already knew that of the world's population only about 27% are Christians and the other 73% are non-Christians, is it logical to suppose that he would ever be convinced that an omniscient, omnipotent, benevolent, supreme being would select only one quarter of his children whom he had created for redemption, 
with the infallible knowledge that nearly three-quarters of them would be confined to hell for not believing what he could have made them believe if he were truly omnipotent, omniscient, and benevolent. Would he not rather reply that on his planet such a father, who would select some of his children for rewards and maliciously torture the other children, would not be designated as a god but a devil? Were the Martian to be further informed that each one of God's children was represented in actual figures by hundreds of millions, and that these have been living on the planet Earth for hundreds of thousands of years, and were the visitor to contemplate the vast incomprehensible number of souls that might have been confined to hell by such a father, might he not cut his visit short? He would be apt to repeat with James Mill, Think of a being who would make a hell who would create the human race with the infallible foreknowledge and therefore with the intention that the great majority of them should be consigned to horrible and everlasting torment. I believe that our guest would assert that if such a being actually existed and demanded worship, he would certainly have revealed his true belief to the first man Adam and therefore saved his children an inestimable amount of suffering. Were the visitor to be further pressed by the zealot with the vision of eternal hell, I believe he would retort that there is no reason for God to punish those who doubt or deny faith in his existence, since it is his own doing. And if he desired each one of his children to worship him according to the precepts of a certain creed, he surely would have instilled that creed into man's makeup, together with the rest of his characteristics. Undoubtedly, he would not esteem any creed which damned the human intellect by cursing the doubts which are the necessary consequence of its exercise, or the creed which cursed the moral faculty by asserting the guilt of honest error. If our visitor would but glance at the history, the evolution of religious beliefs, he would realize and soundly assert that all religions are human in their origins erroneous in their theories, and ridiculous in their threats and rewards. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 Of the Necessity of Atheism The Quran and the Old and New Testaments The Jews emerge into history, not a nation of keen spiritual aspirations and altruistic ethics, but that pagan people, worshipping rocks, sheep and cattle, and spirits of caves and wells, of whom the Old Testament, tending towards its higher ideal, gives fragmentary but convincing evidence. James T. Shotwell Consider Javeh, cruel god of a horde of nomadic invaders, settling in a land of farmers. He had his images, ranging in elaboration from an uncut maziba or asherah, to a golden bull. He was plural by place and tribe and function. What did the prophetic movement do with his sacred powers? It identified his taboos with a written constitution. Horace M. Callan The mental attitude of these priest-dominated ancestors of ours is amazing. They were like children in the hands of unscrupulous teachers. In reading these old chronicles, it is impossible not to be shocked by the incongruity ever arising out of the juxtaposition of theory and practice. Chloelin Powys Our Martian visitor, having withstood the blasts of the zealot, is approached by a Mohammedan, 
who places in his hands the Quran and tells him that it is a divinely inspired revelation as revealed by Allah through his prophet Muhammad. Having already had some experience with earthly religionists, the Martian is disposed to avail himself of the historical evidence regarding the life of Muhammad. He finds that Muhammad, from all accounts, was a demagogue, a charlatan, and a victim of mental disease. It strikes him strangely that such an individual should be chosen by Allah as his disciple on earth to make known his commands. He notes Muhammad's appearance on earth in 600 AD and wonders why the Creator should have procrastinated for such a long time, but decides to read the revelations anyhow. He discovers that, from the literary point of view, the Quran has little merit. Declamation, repetition, puerility, a lack of logic, and incoherence strike him at every turn. He finds it humiliating to the human intellect to think that this mediocre literature has been the subject of innumerable commentaries and that millions of men are still wasting time in absorbing it. A Hebrew next takes his turn at this obstinate guest and sets before him the Old Testament. Again, the Martian is informed that it is an inspired book actuated by God. In his attempt to find the historical evidence corroborating this book, the Martian finds that authentic history begins for the Israelites with the constitution of Saul's monarchy, about 1100 BC. All that precedes this, the deluge, the dispersal of mankind, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, the captivity in Egypt, Moses, Joshua, and the conquest of Canaan, is more or less mythical. In the Old Testament, our Martian reads the first chapter, glances at the chronology, and is immediately bewildered since he has a fair knowledge of our scientific advances. As he reads on, he becomes aware of a host of errors, contradictions, and manifest absurdities. When he questions the zealous Hebrew, he comes in contact with what he is informed is concordism which he perceives is a false science that consists in determining, at any cost, a perfect harmony between modern science and the knowledge possessed by God's people. He is thus told that the days of creation were not days at all, but periods, although the Bible mentions the morning and evening of each day. Delving further in this most holy of revelations, he learns that God is represented in a manner most unworthy of what such a being should be represented. He finds the Lord walking in the cool of the evening, showing his hindquarters to Moses, ordering abominable massacres, and punishing chiefs who had not killed enough people. On further perusal, there is revealed a great deal of oriental bombast, incoherence, and absurdity that the marvels recounted are often ludicrous or grotesque. In a chance moment, when the Hebrew had relaxed his hold for a second, a vile heretic points out to the visitor Exodus 12:18, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, and explains the witchcraft delusion to him. From a comparison between Exodus 34 and Exodus 20, he is at a loss to decipher which are the true commandments that the Lord gave to Moses. The first five books of the Pentateuch, he finds, are attributed to Moses, although they contain the account of the latter's death. 
On inquiry, he learns that this is still maintained by the synagogue. His Martian intellect is unable to comprehend the logic of a god who would demand human and animal sacrifice, and the story of Abraham about to sacrifice his son Isaac fills him with disgust. His estimate of the mentality of Jehovah receives a severe jolt when he reads in Leviticus 16, Herewith shall Aaron come unto the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. And he shall be girded with the linen girdle, and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. They are the holy garments. And he shall bathe his flesh in water, and put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two he-goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall present the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his houses. And he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the door of the tent of the meeting. Our visitor reads on to Leviticus 18, after which he must stop to question the Hebrew, for here he finds, None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of thy father, even the nakedness of thy mother, shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. The nakedness of thy sister, the daughter of thy father, or daughter of thy mother, whether she be born at home or abroad, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover. The nakedness of thy son's wife, the nakedness of the wife of thy father, the nakedness of thy father's sister, thy mother's sister, the nakedness of thy daughter-in-law, thy brother's wife, the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, thou shalt not uncover. And unto a woman separated by her uncleanliness thou shalt not approach to uncover her nakedness. Thou shalt not be carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. Thou shalt not be with mankind as with womankind. Thou shalt not be with any beast to defile thyself thereto. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. The Martian, totally aghast, is constrained to exclaim that he cannot believe that a deity should find it necessary to place this in a divine revelation. The Hebrew zealot relents somewhat to explain that perhaps this was not revealed, but found its way into the divine text as a moral lesson to the primitive tribes for which it was written. To this our guest counters with the remark that, if this be a parable of manners and morals, then, from what he observes on the earth, we, earthlings, have certainly outgrown the need for such coarse and obscene statements made some two thousand years ago, and that on Mars, although the inhabitants are not blessed with such divine revelations, common sense and reason have taught their most primitive men the same lessons in morality while they were yet in their infancy. Reflecting on this maze of contradictions, the Martian determines to analyze the Old Testament and the Hebrew religion in the same manner that he would investigate any other problem presented to him. 
3,500 years ago, the Hebrews were a pastoral, primitive people inhabiting the wilderness known today as the Arabian Desert. Their religion was that of all other primitive peoples, animism, an illusion which made primitive man recognize everywhere spirits similar to his own spirit. They worshipped the spirits of the sun and the moon, the mountains and rocks, as well as the spirits of the dead. It appears certain that the barrenness of this desert land necessitated these wandering tribes to migrate to adjacent areas of greater fertility. To the north lay the fertile valleys of the Tigris and Euphrates, and the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. To the west lay the land of the Egyptians. Time and time again these Bedouin tribes hurled themselves against the inhabitants of the northern fertile valleys. Babylonia, to the northeast, was the first country to be invaded, and later Canaan, to the northwest. Successful at times in establishing themselves in Babylonia and Canaan, they were at other times driven back into the desert when the native inhabitants in turn attacked the invaders. Migrating into Egypt in search of food, they were made a captive nation and escaped again into the desert when the Egyptians were engaged in fighting the savage invaders from Libya. The leader of this flight from Egypt was the prophet Moses. The Martian decides to investigate the character and deeds of this influential figure at another time. It is probable that the Exodus gave the proper stimulus for the beginnings of a distinctive Hebrew religion, and was the reason for their finally establishing themselves in Canaan, with Jehovah as their chief deity. It has often been proclaimed that the value of Judaism has been in first establishing a religion of monotheism. But it must not be forgotten that centuries before the Hebrews escaped into the desert, the Egyptians were tending to monotheism. It is known that one god was exalted over all the rest in Egypt, and that as far back as 1375 B.C. King Ikhnaton made the religion of Egypt an absolute monotheism. The Hebrews, in proclaiming their Yahweh as the one and supreme deity, were but following what they had assimilated from the Egyptians. The faith of these desert marauders at the time of their entrance into Canaan was as crude and savage as the Hebrews themselves. Brought into contact with the gods of the Phoenicians and Babylonians, their Yahweh underwent a change, as have all other creeds since that time, when brought into contact with another creed. The final idea of Yahweh accepted by the Hebrews was not the product of a sudden revelation, but of a gradual evolution. The Hebrews, about the 12th century BC, gained access into Canaan, and at first were successful in warfare, so that under King David they presented the aspect of a united nation. However, Following the extravagant reign of King Solomon, the nation was embroiled in a revolution, and the land was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. These two tiny kingdoms were habitually at war with each other, and finally, in 722 BC, Israel was conquered, while in 586 BC, Judah was defeated, and its population either scattered or taken into captivity. In 538 BC, Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylonia and set the exiles free. 
Returning to their own land, the exiles took back with them the law code which the priests had manufactured for them. Then began a period of priestly domination and corruption, a period of subjugation to Rome, of insurrection against Rome, and the capture and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. With the capture of Jerusalem, the Hebrew nation was finally dispersed. Just as the Martian was able to trace the evolution of the Hebrews from the stage of the marauding tribes of the Arabian desert who wandered into Egypt, Canaan, and Babylonia, and finally established a kingdom for themselves which was dispersed by Rome, just so could he trace the evolution of their religious beliefs from their incipient crudities to their not-too-great refinement at 70 A.D., this evolution of the Hebrew religion is best exemplified by an analysis of the Old Testament itself. There are several canons, or official collections of books, which comprise the Old Testament. The Jews and Protestants accept fewer books than the Roman Catholics. The Jewish canon consists of those so-called sacred books of which the synagogue possessed Hebrew texts about a century before the Christian era. About 150 BC, the sacred books of the Jews were translated into Greek for the use of those Egyptian Jews who could not read Hebrew. This translation is called the Septuagint, from a tradition that 70 or 72 translators had worked upon it. The earliest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible date only from the 10th century AD, but there are very much older manuscripts of the Greek and Latin translations in existence. At the time of Jesus Christ, three divisions of the Old Testament were recognized. These were the Law, the Prophets, and the Other Scriptures. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are known as the Pentateuch and are attributed to Moses himself, although, as it has been noted, they contain the account of his death. This conception of the Mosaic origin of the Pentateuch was accepted by the Israelites as early as the 5th century BC and has been maintained by the synagogue since that time. Following the example of the Hebrews, the Christian churches accepted this version as to origin and the Roman Catholic Church still upholds this view. The Jewish synagogue and the various Christian churches further hold that the Old Testament is a collection of works, inspired or dictated by God. Even as late as 1861, the famous Dean Burgon, in a sermon preached at Oxford University, declared, The Bible is none other than the voice of him that sitteth upon the throne. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every verse of it, every syllable of it, every letter of it, is the direct utterance of the Most High. The Bible is none other than the Word of God, not some part of it more, some part of it less, but all alike the utterance of Him who sitteth upon the throne, faultless, unerring, supreme. The Martian compared this statement with the words of the scholar Loisy, if God himself wrote the Bible, we must believe him to be either ignorant or untruthful. As he delves further into the intricacies of the construction of the Bible, our visitor perceives that the Old Testament gradually evolved from the 10th century to the 2nd century BC. 
and in its present form is mainly a 5th century compilation, so distorting the facts that it has taken scholars 150 years to get them straight. It may rightly be said that there is not a single book in the Bible which is original in the sense of having been written by one man, for all the books are made up of older documents or pre-existing sources which were combined with other materials, undergoing in this way several revisions and additions at the hands of different scribes or compilers. Deep traces have therefore been left upon the text of the Bible by these several stages of expansions, additions, modifications, revisions, and incorporations. They appear to the scholar of biblical literature much like the striations grooved in the rocks by large glaciers to the student of geology. The Martian ascertains that, to most thinking men, it has become very obvious that the Bible is the work of man and not the inspiration of a god, that an increasing number of liberal theologians are discarding the theory of the divine inspiration of the Bible. He likewise clearly perceives that there are as yet many men that have given this matter but little thought. With the divine inspiration looming up as a cornerstone in the Hebrew faith, he realizes that it behooves him to carry his investigations further. The Christians, accepting the Old Testament as a book dictated by God, had fixed the age of the earth as 4004 B.C., the harm done by the Christian ecclesiastics in attempting to force science to conform to the ridiculous concept of the construction of the universe as contained in the Bible and as interpreted by the Church, the Martian considers in a further chapter. Scientists incline to the view that the Earth has existed as a separate planet for something like 2,000 million years. The rocks give a history of 16 billion just as in the study of the origin of primitive beliefs, one finds that man made his gods and invented all that they are reported to have said. So a study of the Old Testament reveals that the ancient Hebrew invented his god and manufactured the vast mass of myth and fable that are recorded as the words and deeds of God. Throughout the ages, the words of these ancient Hebrews have been taken as the words of a god. Everything goes to show that the Hebrew literature was produced like other literatures. Hebrews were not the first to tell tales. When they did come to write, for our learning, they borrowed from other people. The only reason why anything more than a literary attention is paid to these old Jewish writings is that Jesus was a Jew. When Christianity was founded, a difficult date to fix, there was no such thing as a Bible. The old Brahmins and Buddhists had holy scriptures, the Egyptians had a book of the dead and the sayings of Kuinaten, the Persians had the Zend Avesta, the Chinese had sacred books, they were all as sacred as the Jewish books. Priests made them sacred. Priests generally rewrote and edited them, even if they had not originally imagined them. There is nothing to guide the man of common sense, save knowledge and reason. Every priest swears his religion and his scriptures are true, but they cannot all be true. If the first are true, then the Jews are past further consideration, for they were not the first in the field of sacred writings. Holy scriptures are merely Jewish classics. 
We have had to accept these old writings of the Hebrews as holy and inspired because the priests said so, and for no other reason whatsoever. There is no other reason. Assuming the existence of a deity, a man exercising his common sense would be compelled to deny that the Old Testament is inspired of God, because it abounds in stupidities and errors such as no God could inspire. But because the Jews accumulated these writings, the subsequent adopters of Christianity, realizing that Jesus was a Jew, and had been a professing Jew, promptly annexed these tales of fancy and of fear, of muddled, sensual, silly things, and said they must be accepted with the teachings of Jesus. And in the course of time, people had to believe these old Jewish writings were the word of God. W. H. Williamson, Thinker or Believer The Hebrews had, as one of their gods, Yahweh, whom they endowed with their qualities, qualities inherent in a primitive people, jealousy and might, trickery and fickleness. They evolved a worship that contained, in a modified form, many of the ceremonials that they had witnessed when they had come into contact with the Babylonians and Phoenicians. Their Bible they maintained to be a collection of books, which appeared at intervals, with divine inspiration during a thousand years of Jewish history. Similarly, they insisted that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, that judges, kings, and chronicles go back to the times that they describe, that the prophecies were added from the ninth century onward, and so on. The Martian found that not a single book of the Old Testament is older than the ninth century B.C., and that in the fifth century B.C., all the older books and fragments were combined together into the Old Testament as we have it, and were drastically altered, so as to yield a version of early Jewish history which is not true. The manipulation of the Hebrew writings by the Jewish priests had for its object to represent the Jewish priesthood, and its rites and customs as having been established in the days of Moses. Deuteronomy and Leviticus have been classed as priestly forgeries. Nearly every occurrence, from the creation of the world to the death of Moses, is related twice, and in some cases, three times. And as the Pentateuch is supposed to have been written by Moses, one must assume that Moses had double and triple vision. Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah are impudent forgeries of the fourth century, giving a totally false version of the events. The Martian finds that the terms used for these fabrications are redaction or recension. But in his understanding, he finds the word most descriptive of the process to be forgery. The main point is that practically all the experts assure you that in scores of material points, the Old Testament history has been discredited, and has only been confirmed in a few unimportant incidental statements and that the books are a tissue of inventions, expansions, conflations, or recensions dating centuries after the event. The Martian, in his analysis, becomes aware of instances related in the Old Testament that on his planet would have to be termed forgeries. Deliberate falsifications or fabrications of documents or of the signature to them, now the far greater part of the more learned clerical authorities on the Bible say that many books of the Old Testament pretend to be written by men who did not write them, that many books were deliberately written as history when the writers knew that they were not history, 
and that the Old Testament as a whole, as we have it, is a deliberate attempt to convey a historical belief which the writers knew to be false. But these learned authorities do not like the word forgery. It is crude. Joseph McCabe, The Forgery of the Old Testament they veil the meaning of this word in the elegance, the subtlety, the resources of diplomatic language. They talk of certain books in terms of their legendary character, their conformity to a scheme, and their didactic purpose. To the Martian, these are all but an extremely polite description of what he would call a forgery. A theologian, in speaking of David, states that, Keen criticism is necessary to arrive at the kernel of fact, and the imaginative element in the story of David is but the vesture which half conceals, half discloses certain facts treasured in popular tradition. The Martian thinks this is polite language, but the word forgery is much more concise and to the point, and he finds an excellent example of this described by Joseph McCabe in The Forgery of the Old Testament. He states, Some time ago we recovered tablets of the great Persian king Cyrus, and Professor Sayer gives us a translation of them, and he compares them, as you may, with the words of Daniel. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom. The tablets of Cyrus describe the taking of Babylon and are beyond the slightest suspicion. The Persians had adopted the Babylonian custom of writing on clay, then baking the brick or tablet, and such documents last forever. And these and other authentic and contemporary documents of the age, which Daniel describes, show 1. That Belshazzar was not the king of Babylon. 2. That the name of the last king was Nabonidos. 3 that the city was taken peacefully, by guile, not by bloodshed. 4. That it was Cyrus, not Darius, the Median, who took it. 5. That Darius, who is said by Daniel to have been the son of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was really his father. 6. That all the Babylonian names in Daniel are absurdly misspelt and quite strange to the writer. 7 that the writer described the Chaldeans in a way that no writer could have done before the time of Alexander the Great. It is now beyond question that the man who wrote Daniel and pretended to be alive in 539 BC when Babylon fell did not live until three or four centuries later. The book is a tissue of errors, as we find by authentic documents and by reading the real Babylonian names on the tablets. The Martian discovers glaring instances of forgery in the book of Isaiah and the Psalms of David, which, while they pretend to have been written by Isaiah and David, are really compilations by various writers. Similarly, he finds that the book of Esther has been pronounced by scholars as a clumsy forgery of the second century, and that the story of the slaying of Goliath by David is not consistent with the unlegendary tradition that the slayer of Goliath was Elhanan, and the period of this adventure not in Saul's but in David's reign. The book of Psalms, although attributed to King David, was not written by King David, and the book of Proverbs, although attributed to Solomon, was not written by King Solomon.
The book of Genesis relates the mythical traditions of the Hebrews from the creation of the world to the death of Joseph. A French physician of the 18th century, Astruc, was the first scholar to point out that the two principal designations of God in Genesis, Elohim and Jahveh, are not used arbitrarily. If we place side by side the passages in which God is called Elohim and those in which he is called by the other name, we get two perfectly distinct narratives, which the author of the Pentateuch as we possess it has juxtaposed rather than fused. This one discovery suffices to discredit the attribution of these books to Moses, who could not have been an intelligent compiler and also discredits the theory of the divine inspiration of the Bible text. A comparison of the two narratives shows that all which relates to the creation of Eve, the Garden of Eden, and Adam's transgression exists only in the Jehovist text. Thus it is evident that two versions of the creation are given in Genesis. But there are traces in the Old Testament of a third legend, akin to that of the Babylonians, in which Marduk creates the world by virtue of a victory over the waters of chaos. This conception of a conflict between the creator and hostile forces was contrary to the monotheistic thesis, and has disappeared from our two versions of Genesis. But the suppression sufficiently proves that it was very ancient and had long been accepted. The Martian finds that theologians have attempted to crawl out of desperate situations in their interpretation of the Old Testament by a method of reading into a passage or extracting out of it ideas altogether foreign to its original intent. This method they call allegory. By means of this process, they have been able to extract any meaning which suits their purposes, and by this method of juggling could prove anything. A classic example is that licentious piece of literature called the Song of Solomon, in which it is claimed that a woman's breasts, thighs, and belly are the symbols of the union of Yahweh and the synagogue. Continuing his researches, the Martian notices a number of passages in the Old Testament that lead him to the conclusion that the Hebrews were originally polytheists. The name Elohim, he finds, is plural. Singular is Eloah, meaning the gods. Again, in another passage of Genesis, God is described as saying, Let us make man in our image. And further on, the man is become as one of us. It becomes evident to him that the Hebrews, like their neighbors, worshipped Baalim, or the gods of the heathens. The teraphim, the etymology of which is unknown, were little portable idols which seem to have been the lairs of the ancient Hebrews. David owned some, 1 Samuel 19, 13-16, and the prophet Hosea in the 8th century before Christ, seems still to have considered the teraphim as indispensable in worship. Hosea 3, 4. These evidences of polytheism and fetishism in the people of Israel destroy in the mind of the Martian the claim of these people to have been faithful from their earliest origin to a spiritual monotheism. Rather does he find that they took the religions of other peoples with whom they came in contact. The Old Testament contains numerous instances of the practice of magic. 
Moses and Aaron were magicians who rivaled Pharaoh's magicians, Exodus 7, 11-20. And Balaam was a magician who pronounced incantations against Israel and afterwards passed over to the service of Jehovah. Jacob resorted to a kind of sympathetic magic to procure the birth of a speckled sheep, Genesis thirty thirty nine. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live is written in Exodus twenty two eighteen, and this phrase offered an affirmation of the reality of witchcraft during the period of the witchcraft delusion. The Martian notes that the sentence, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, has caused more suffering, torture, and death than probably any other sentence ever framed. His mind revolts at the stupidity and the slavish adherence to so-called authority of the human mind, which is manifested in this example of what occurred in the period of the witchcraft delusion, when the words of an ignorant and barbaric Hebrew were taken by Christian followers to be the words of a god. And yet our Martian guest recognizes that in this day all men are aware of the fallacy of this utterance in a book which is still claimed to be infallible. The Martian then considers the many ancient Hebrew rites and religious taboos that have come down through the ages and are still practiced in a modified form by the modern Hebrew. Thus, in the Old Testament, there are numerous instances recorded of the practices of slaughtering of innocent animals who were offered as peace offerings to Yahweh. As time passed, the practice of slaughtering and then burning the sacrificial animal gave way to the practice of only giving the blood of the animal as an offering. This custom has come down to the present day in the modern worship of Jehovah. The blood of animals is still forbidden to the modern Hebrew. Therefore, the Orthodox Jew has the neck of the chicken slit by a shoket, who allows the blood to drip to the ground, a modern blood offering to the gods. The explanations given by the rabbis of our day are spurious. Similarly, the Orthodox Jew of our time still persists in salting the meat before cooking, a process which is intended to remove the blood, which is the portion of the gods. The reason that the pious Jew abstains from pork leads to the consideration of totemism as found in the Old Testament. Totemism is a kind of worship rendered to animals and vegetables considered as allied and related to man. The worship of animals and plants is found as a survival in all ancient societies and is the origin of the belief in the transmigration of souls. Totemism seems to have been as widespread as the animism from which it is derived and has been closely intertwined in the development of religious beliefs. Totemism, in a modified form, is found in the Old Testament where animals speak on occasion as the serpent in Genesis or Balaam's ass. In the most remote periods, it is probable that every clan had at least one totem animal which might no more be killed or eaten than the human individuals of the clan. The totem was protected by taboo. The totem was sacred, and in this capacity it was looked upon as a source of strength and holiness, and to live beside it and under its protection was considered as a righteous custom. In certain communities, the idea that it was necessary to abstain from eating certain totems survived the progress of material civilization. 
The cow is taboo to the Hindus. The pig is taboo to the Mohammedans and to the Jews. The pious Jew abstains from pork because his remote ancestors, five or six thousand years before our era, had the wild boar as their totem. This is the origin of this alimentary taboo. Among the ancient Hebrews it arose, and only comparatively recently has it been suggested that the flesh of these taboo animals was unwholesome. In the 18th century, philosophers propagated the erroneous notion that if certain religious legislators had forbidden various aliments, it was for hygienic motives. Even Renan believed that dread of trichinosis and leprosy had caused the Hebrews to forbid the use of pork. To show the irrational nature of this explanation, it will be enough to point out that in the whole of the Bible there is not a single instance of an epidemic or a malady attributed to the eating of unclean meats. The idea of hygiene awoke very late in the Greek world. To the biblical writers, as to contemporary savages, illness is supernatural. It is an effect of the wrath of spirits. Primitive man ascribed all diseases either to the wrath of God or the malice of an evil being. The curing of disease by the casting out of devils and by prayers were the means of relief from sickness recognized and commanded by the Old Testament. The hygienic explanation of an alimentary prohibition, as still insisted upon by the rabbis, is entirely erroneous and marks the expounder of such an explanation as one who is entirely ignorant of the evolution of religious beliefs. The entire matter is well stated in one sentence by Reinach. Nothing can be more absurd, generally speaking, than to explain the religious laws and practices of the remote past by considerations based on modern science. The Martian is able to trace some curious customs that were exhibited by the ancient Hebrews, as well as most other ancient peoples, and which have persisted to this day. The customs remain the same. The meanings have become lost in the blind adherence to custom. It is known that the old Jewish mourning customs originated with the desire for protection from the liberated spirit of the deceased. The loud cries uttered by the mourners were thought to frighten away the spirits. The change of dress, the covering of the head with ashes, and the shaving of the hair of the mourners were done with the purpose of making themselves unrecognizable to the spirits. Hence the custom still prevails of wearing the mourning veil. The covering of mirrors, when death occurs in the household, may well be an attempt to prevent the spirit from lingering in the vicinity. Similarly, even today, the Orthodox Jew, in case of grave illness in his family, changes the given name of the sufferer. To confuse the evil spirit causing the disease? Further survivals of totemism, as found in the Old Testament, are illustrated by the worship of the bull and the serpent. Portable, gilded images of bulls were consecrated, and Hosea protested against the worship of the bull in the kingdom of Israel. Hosea 8, 5, and 10, 5. The famous golden calf of the Israelites, which was the object of Moses' anger, was a totemic idol. The worship of the serpent was practiced by Moses himself. Numbers 21, 9. A brazen serpent was worshipped in the temple of Jerusalem, and was only destroyed by Hezekiah about 700 B.C. 
2 Kings 18, 4. The ancient Hebrews, as well as their neighbors, were phallic worshippers. To primitive people, it is but a natural phase to have the phallus become the exponent of creative power, and as such, to be worshipped. To these primitive minds, there was nothing immoral in genuine phallic worship. Signs of phallicism among the ancient Hebrews can be clearly pointed out. The serpent was a phallic symbol. That the serpent was the phallus is proved by the Bible itself. The Hebrew word used for serpent is nakash, which is everywhere else translated in the Bible in a phallic sense, as in Ezekiel 16.36, where it is rendered filthiness in the sense of exposure, like the having thy boseth naked of Micah. J. B. Hannay, Christianity, the Sources of its Teaching and Symbolism. The Ark itself was a feminine symbol, and phallicism would explain why Moses made an ark and put in it a rod and two stones. The Edith, the Shekinah, the Sur, and the Yahweh were identical, simply different names for the same thing, the phallus. They occupied the female ark with which they formed the double-sexed life symbol. The Hebrew religion thus had a purely phallic basis, as was to be expected from a ritual and symbolism derived from two extremely phallic nations, Babylon and Egypt. An intelligent reading of Exodus 34.13 and 1 Kings 14.23 and 24 will prove the above contention. Once more, our Martian guest is besieged by the Hebrew zealot to examine the divine revelation of his religion. This time the Martian notes, I, Yahweh thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations. Deuteronomy. Which seems to him to savor of a cruel and monstrous being. He cannot perceive of a just being favoring slavery. Exodus 11. Or of a merciful father ordering human sacrifice. Exodus 13. Leviticus 27.29, Numbers 13.3. He is dumbfounded to find references to cannibalism. Leviticus 26, 14, 16, and 28. Deuteronomy 28, 53-58. Jeremiah 19, 9. Ezekiel 5, 10. Kings 6, 26, 29, and 33. A benevolent being, he reasons, would not sanction war and destruction of the captured enemy, yet there are instances of this. Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. Deuteronomy 20, 13 to 14. Deuteronomy 7, 1, 2, and 16. The reading of Numbers 5, 11-29, and Deuteronomy 22, nauseated him. The Hebrew zealot, observing the utter disgust with which the reader was regarding his revelation, is obliged to explain to the bewildered barbarian unbeliever that the Old Testament is the foundation for all of our morals, and that without it we would have developed into a very shocking and immoral race. 
Since the visitor wishes to remain courteous, he proceeds, but with a great deal of hesitation, to further examine the revelation of God. At this point, he is assured that this work is read in most schools and taught to small children. However, our guest is again disillusioned, for no sooner does he arrive at Genesis seven eleven to 20 than he finds that Abraham, good Abraham, the pure, the father of all Hebrews, makes of the sacred relationship of marriage a means of personal gain and safety by betraying his own wife. Now it is the Martian's turn to inquire of the Hebrew whether the latter had ever read this story to his own daughter, or the story of Abraham's affair with Hagar, his handmaiden. Was the Hebrew's young daughter aware that Isaac, son of Abraham, was as ready and willing to prostitute his wife for protection for himself, as was his father Abraham? The Martian is puzzled by the word sporting in Genesis 26, 8-11, and is informed of its meaning. A few moments after reading Genesis 19, 1-7, he informs his would-be converter that if Lot had lived in Mars and had offered his daughters to appease the mob, the account of that incident would never have found its way into any work on morals. Moreover, he failed utterly to see how the account of Lot's daughters getting him into a drunken state, followed by a statement such as, Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father, could ever have any moral value. The story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel does not appeal to this infidel Martian, since he still believes that integrity and faithfulness are virtues. Yet in his endeavor to respect the courtesy due to his host, he reaches for pencil and pad and notes the various moral lessons he had derived thus far from the Old Testament. He wrote lust, incest, infidelity, and prostitution. Arriving at the story of Dina, Genesis 34.1-2, he wrote that in addition to these vices already listed, rape should be given a prominent place. The stories of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Judah and Tamar, King David and his wives, the rape of Tamar by her brother Ammon, did not impress the Martian as stories for the delectation of children, since he was crude enough to hold that anything which would shock the mind of a child could not have any moral value, and would thus be automatically excluded from any religion. He therefore returned the volume to the Hebrew, with the remark that, as an adult, he found the stories of Demopassant and Balzac more interesting, even though they belonged to the same genre. Our guest now repaired to one of our golf courses, where, during the interval of a few hours, the fresh air, the sunshine, and exercise dispelled the mental nausea which the reading of the Old Testament had occasioned in him. Returning to his quarters, he is approached by one of the Christian brethren, and the New Testament is placed in his hands with these remarks. The Christian recognizes that in the Old Testament, the Jews have given to the Christian world its greatest heritage. The fact that in exchange for this priceless heritage, the Christians have given to the Jews a series of persecutions unequaled in the annals of human warfare is explained by the quality of the brotherhood of man that naturally manifests itself after a complete conversion to the Bible's precepts. The Old Testament contains the first revelations of God, 
the New Testament, the last revelations. Our Christian brother forgets to remind the visitor that the difference of opinion regarding these two testaments of God has caused more sorrow, bloodshed, harm, devilment, misery, and devastation than any other single item in the life and history of the human race. The Martian is hard-pressed to reconcile the fact that Mohammedanism, 600 years after the appearance of Christianity, triumphed over Christianity in a great portion of the earth's surface. Yet he is informed that Christianity is the religion of God, that Allah made the Mohammedans, Jehovah the Jews, the Trinity the Christians, and the rest of the believers were illegitimate children of the above gods, was the only conclusion he could reach. In a few moments, the myth of Christ begins to unfold itself before his eyes in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, and the Apocalypse. He finds the so-called messianic texts, which are supposed to prefigure Jesus in the Old Testament, have all been either misunderstood or deliberately misinterpreted. The most celebrated is that in Isaiah 7.14, which predicts that a virgin shall bear a son, Emmanuel. But the word Alma, which the Septuagint rendered virgin, means in Hebrew a young woman. And this passage merely deals with the approaching birth of a son to the king or the prophet himself. This error of the Septuagint is one of the sources of the legend relating to the virginal birth of Jesus. As early as the second century AD, the Jews perceived it and pointed it out to the Greeks, but the church knowingly persisted in the false reading, and for over fifteen centuries she has clung to her error. His attentive reading convinces him that not one of the Gospels is the work of an eyewitness to the scenes recorded. A little side investigation reveals that there were a great many writings called Gospels, from which the Church finally adopted four, guaranteeing their inspiration and absolute veracity, no doubt because they were in favor in four very influential churches, Matthew at Jerusalem, Mark at Rome or at Alexandria, Luke at Antioch, and John at Ephesus. Moreover, what the Gospels tell him, he perceives is what different Christian communities believed concerning Jesus between the years 70 and 100 A.D. In Matthew 26:39, Mark 14:35, and Luke 22:42, there are words such as those Jesus is supposed to have uttered during the slumber of these very same apostles. This occurrence enlightens him as to what St. Augustine meant when he wrote, I should not believe in the gospel if I had not the authority of the church for so doing. If the documents are stuffed with the authority of the church, these gospels cannot be utilized for a history of the real life of Jesus. A study of the epistles of St. Paul reveals that St. Paul taught that sin and death came into the world by Adam's fall. In spite of a diligent search, the Martian found no mention of this in the words ascribed to Jesus. From St. Paul's utterances, he learns that Christ came to redeem mankind by his voluntary oblation of himself. He was the Son of God. Paul, not knowing that in the future a special form of conception would be superimposed on Jesus, states that he was of human birth. The Martian determined to ascertain what effect 
the teachings of St. Paul have had on Christianity. He learns that, ever since St. Paul, the ruling idea of Christianity has been that of the redemption of man, guilty of a prehistoric fault by the voluntary sacrifice of a superman. This doctrine is founded upon that of expiation. A guilty person must suffer to atone for his fault, and that of the substitution of victims, the efficacious suffering of an innocent person for a guilty one. Both are at once pagan and Jewish ideas. They belong to the old fundamental errors of humanity. Yet Plato knew that the punishment inflicted on a guilty person is not, nor should it be, a vengeance. It is a painful remedy imposed on him for his own benefit and that of society. At about the same period, Athenian law laid down the principle that punishment should be as personal as the fault. Thus, St. Paul founded Christian theology on two archaic ideas which had already been condemned by enlightened Athenians of the fourth century before our era. Ideas which no one would dream of upholding in these days, though the structure built upon them still subsists. In chapter 5 of the first epistle of St. John, these words strike the visitor. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, and the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. If these two verses are authentic, they would be an affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity, dating from the first century at a time when the Gospels, the Acts, and St. Paul ignore it. It was first pointed out in 1806 that these verses were an interpolation, for they do not appear in the best manuscripts, notably all the Greek manuscripts down to the 15th century. The Roman Church refused to bow to evidence. The Congregation of the Index, on January 13, 1897, with the approbation of Leo XIII, forbade any question as to the authenticity of the text relating to the three heavenly witnesses. It appeared strange to the Martian that a god should need the lies of his disciples to be incorporated in a divine revelation. But his confusion was even greater when he read, We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And yet... They are not three Eternals, but one Eternal, not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son, God, and the Holy Ghost, God. And yet they are not three Gods, but one God. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father, alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. And in this trinity none is afore or after the other, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. He thought this would make a great puzzle, truly an insoluble conundrum, to take back to bewilder his Martian friends. However, he was able to comprehend the remarks of Vigilantius, who returned from a journey in Italy and the Holy Land, disgusted with official Christianity. He protested vehemently against the idolatrous worship of images, the legacy of paganism to the Church, 
a practice directly opposed to that of the Mosaic law which Jesus came not to destroy but to fulfill. It was idle to reply that these images were the scriptures of the illiterate, that they were not the object of, but the stimulus to, worship. Experience showed that the majority of the faithful confounded, as indeed they still do, the sign with the thing signified. Salomon Reynach Orpheus The result of the critical examination of the New Testament by the Martian is that, just as most of the Old Testament books are not only anonymous, but highly composite productions, that as certain writings traditionally ascribed to Moses, David, Solomon, Daniel, and others are utterly lacking in the necessary evidences in support of authorship, but bear unmistakable evidence of having gone through a long, compilatory process, so does each gospel, despite its seeming unity, give evidence of being a composite literary product. Scholars have agreed that Mark first set forth the doings of Jesus, and it was out of Mark that both Matthew and Luke took the framework of their own writings, cleverly fitting into its arrangement their own distinctive material and coloring the whole by their own individual treatment. Tratner, Unraveling the Book of Books it is estimated that Mark was written shortly before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. This means that a chasm of 30 or 40 years separates Mark's written document from the ministry of Jesus, a long enough time to create a plastic body of oral teachings and a highly colored tradition embellished with fanciful stories. Luke was a Greek physician living somewhere on the shores of the Aegean Sea. He had been a friend of Paul, just as Mark had been with Peter. Luke had no personal acquaintance with Jesus, and had to get his information from what others said, or from what the friends of eyewitnesses had seen. The Gospel of Matthew is an anonymous composition which, on analysis, has been found to incorporate nearly 50% of what is found in Mark. It is now believed by many scholars to have been written between the years 75 and 80 AD at Antioch, not, of course, by the Apostle Matthew, but by some unknown editor. The fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, is vastly different in style, arrangement, and in the description of the words, actions, and general spiritual character of Jesus. Many scholars believe that it was written in the city of Ephesus, somewhere around the year 100 A.D. Church tradition ascribed it to the Apostle Paul, the son of Zebedee, one of the fishermen whom Jesus called to be a disciple. Years ago, this view was easily entertained, but there now exists too much refractory evidence against assigning this Greek gospel to an Aramaic-speaking Galilean. That an untutored fisherman could have written so elaborate and so highly philosophical an account of Jesus has always presented a thorny problem. And so, to most scholars, John's authorship of the fourth gospel is unthinkable. Not one of the gospels is the work of an eyewitness, and the four gospels do not complete each other. They contradict each other, and when they do not contradict, they repeat each other. The Christ of John is a totally different person from the Christ of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. 
Loisy, in his Kelke's Letters, states, If there is one thing above others that is obvious, but as to which the most powerful of theological interests have caused a deliberate or unconscious blindness, it is the profound, the irreducible incompatibility of the synoptical gospels and the fourth gospel. If Jesus spoke and acted as he is said to have spoken and acted in the first three gospels, he did not speak and act as he is reported to have done in the fourth. The Martian is forced to the conclusion that the New Testament, with its version of the virgin birth, Elizabeth the cousin of Mary, Zacharias and the angel Gabriel, Jesus and the sinner, are on par with the eroticism of the Old Testament. The interpolations, the myth and fable, also compare with the first revelation, and in his opinion, he prefers Anderson's fairy tales or Aesop's fables. Meanwhile, a Protestant brother mentions the name of Luther, and the conclusions he draws are that the exciting cause of the Reformation was an extravagant sale of indulgences conceded to the German Dominicans. The Augustinians grew jealous of the Dominicans, and an Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, affixed to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral 95 articles against the abuse of indulgences. This started the fray in Germany with Luther at the head of this heresy. The gravest difference of opinion had to do with the communion. Luther retained one half of the mystery and rejected the other half. He confesses that the body of Jesus Christ is in the consecrated element, but it is, he says, as fire is in the red-hot iron. The fire and the iron subsist together. This is what they called impanation, invination, consubstantiation. Thus, while those they called papists ate God without bread, the Lutherans ate God and bread. Soon afterwards came the Calvinists who ate bread and did not eat God. In short, Luther was in harmony with the Roman Church in nothing but the doctrines of the Trinity, baptism, and incarnation, and the resurrection. Luther thought it was time to abolish private mass, he pretended the devil had appeared to him and reproached him for saying mass and consecrating the elements. The devil had proved to him, he said, that it was idolatry. Luther declared that the devil was right and must be believed. The mass was abolished in Wittenberg and soon afterwards throughout Saxony. The images were thrown down, monks and nuns left their cloisters, and a few years later Luther married a nun called Catherine von Bora. This tale did not greatly impress our guest. A Catholic brother, not to be outdone, extols the glories of his universal church, and the Martian again sets out to investigate. This time he finds, The quotations in the New Testament which the Catholic creed interprets as giving divine authority to its representatives on earth is a late interpolation. The Trinity, as stated above, is a paradox which no rational being can understand, and its dogmas and idolatry are consistent with a civilization of 4,000 years ago. A study of the lives of its popes put to shame the statement that they could possibly be the earthly representatives of a benevolent being. In the ninth and 10th centuries, the papacy passed through a period of shameful disorder. The Rome of John X was a cloaca, 
in which the popes set the example of the worst misconduct. For a good short account of the lives of the popes, see Draper's History of the Intellectual Development of Europe. During the complete control by the Church of Civilization in Europe, it has retarded the progress of humanity for at least 2,000 years, and its precepts and fundamental principles are today detrimental to the advance of mankind. It has to its credit a long series of judicial murders for differences of opinion. The Crusades, instigated by the popes and seconded by the monks, cost millions of lives and exhausted the resources of Christian Europe. They aggravated fanaticism, exaggerated the worship of saints and relics to the point of mania, and encouraged the abuse of and traffic in indulgences. There had never been a single opinion persecuted by the Church in the Middle Ages, the adoption of which would not have brought about a diminution of her revenues. The Church has always primarily considered her finances. The papacy was responsible for the Inquisition, and it actively encouraged and excited its ferocity. It gave birth to the witchcraft mania. The first Grand Inquisitor, Torquemada, received the congratulations of the Pope. It diabolically applauded the St. Bartholomew Massacre, and instigated the numerous religious wars that tore Europe asunder, and was the cause of the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives and incalculable suffering. With such savage alacrity did it carry out its object of protecting the interests of religion, that between 1481 and 1808 it had punished 340,000 persons, and of these nearly 32,000 had been burnt. It is perfectly certain that the Catholic Church has taught and still teaches that intellectual liberty is dangerous, that it should be forbidden. It was driven to take this position because it had taken another. It taught and still teaches that a certain belief is necessary to salvation. It has always known that investigation and inquiry led or might lead to doubt, that doubt leads or may lead to heresy, and that heresy leads to hell. In other words, the Catholic Church has something more important than this world, more important than the well-being of man here. It regards this life as an opportunity for joining that church, for accepting that creed, and for the saving of your soul. If the history of the world proves anything, it proves that the Catholic Church was for many centuries the most merciless institution that ever existed among men. We too know that the Catholic Church was, during all the years of its power, the enemy of every science. It preferred magic to medicine, relics to remedies, priests to physicians. It hated geologists, persecuted the chemists, and imprisoned the naturalists, and opposed every discovery of science calculated to improve the condition of mankind. There is no crime that the Catholic Church did not commit, no cruelty that it did not reward, and no virtue that it did not persecute. It was the greatest and most powerful enemy of human rights. In one hand it carried an alms dish, and in the other a dagger. It argued with the sword, persecuted with poison, and convicted with faggot. R. G. Ingersoll, Rome or Reason. 
From the time of Newton to our own day, the divergence of science from the dogmas of the Church has steadily increased. The Church declared that the Earth is the central and most important body in the universe, that the sun and moon and stars are tributary to it. On these points she was worsted by astronomy. She affirmed that a universal deluge had covered the Earth, that the only surviving animals were such as had been saved in the Ark, in this, her error was established by geology. She taught that there was a first man who, some 6,000 or 8,000 years ago, was suddenly created or called into existence in a condition of physical and moral perfection, and from that condition he fell. But anthropology has shown that human beings existed far back in geological time, and in a savage state, but little better than that of the brute. Convicted of so many errors, the papacy makes no attempt at explanation. It ignores the whole matter. Nay, more, relying on the efficacy of audacity, although confronted by these facts, it lays claim to infallibility. The persecutions of Bruno, Galileo, and Copernicus, together with the facts hitherto stated, did not impress the Martian with the infallibility of the Church. The only great spiritual power that could have interposed to prevent the outbreak of the world war was the papacy. Pope Pius X had his nuncio admonish the Austrian emperor, but he failed even to get an audition from that old imbecile. The next pope, Benedict XV, was under the influence of a majority of pro-German cardinals. He strove to remain neutral. He attempted to solace the Belgians with words, but he did not reprove the murderous invaders. He protested against the new and devilish methods of warfare, but he did not condemn, he did not excommunicate those that used them. Had the papacy lost its much-used power of commanding kings and nations, and had it lost its greatest threat, a threat which hitherto could have thrown the masses of its adherents into a panic, the threat of excommunication? No, the papacy still blessed the banners of the armies, just as it did during the Middle Ages, and sent its adherents out to slaughter, but first took great care that the minds of the devout be completely drugged with the poison of its creed. A creed that told its followers that, do what you might, no matter how dastardly that act might be, so long as you repent and confess your sins, life everlasting will be the reward. What is the value of a church that has claimed the moral leadership of the world when such things can happen? Now that the Martian has become acquainted with the three major religions which dominate the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Mohammedanism, and has been amazed and shocked at the significance of their teachings in the history of civilization, his curiosity is further aroused, and he decides to obtain some information of the respective personalities responsible for the amassing of devotees to these creeds, all infallible and all detrimental to progress. This time, his interest leads him to ancient and contemporary sources, of a literal rather than verbal nature, sources dealing with the three most influential prophets in the history of mankind, Jesus, Moses and Mohammed. End of chapter 2. Chapter 3 of the Necessity of Atheism. 
The Prophets Mohammed, Jesus, and Moses. Charlatans or Victims of Mental and Physical Disease. The Prophet, or Seer, is a man of strong imaginative powers which have not been calmed by education. The ideas which occur to his mind often present themselves to his eyes and ears in corresponding sights and sounds. Prophets have existed in all countries and at all times, but the gift becomes rare in the same proportion as people learn to read and write. Winwood Reed Religious apologists are forever reminding us that we must interpret both the lives and the works of their prophets and recorders in the spirit and meaning of the ages in which they lived. To this I agree, but the apologists have so mutilated the meaning of the words of the seers and built about them such a mass of nonsense, myth, and fable that it becomes nearly impossible after the lapse of centuries to differentiate the actual man from the fabled man. But there are certain facts that do come down to us recorded by disinterested observers from which can be derived, finally, some conception of their mode of life and the content and significance of their teachings. Although time causes great changes in customs and manners, it only affects a negligible variation in the vast majority of diseases which affect the body and mind of man. We know from the examination of the skeletal remains of prehistoric man that the diseases of the bone of thousands of years ago were similar in their manifestations to those same diseases of bone of today. From the writings of the early Egyptian, Greek, and Roman physicians, we identify diseases by their symptoms and recognize that the symptoms of these diseases have not changed throughout the ages. Therefore, with the knowledge of the signs and symptoms of various diseases which we have today, we can safely assert that if an ancient complained of the same group of signs and symptoms, which is now termed a disease complex, he was suffering from the same disease which we can identify in modern man. What applies to physical disease is just as applicable to mental disease. In speaking of mental disease, it is important for the layman to keep in mind a few fundamental principles held by the physician. The physician, in speaking of mental disease, means a more or less permanent departure from the normal or usual way of thinking, acting, or feeling. In the examination of a patient with mental disease, the physician looks for delusions, illusions, and hallucinations. A delusion is a false belief, concerning which the individual who holds it is unable to admit evidence such as would be admitted by ordinary individuals. An illusion is a deception of the senses, a misinterpretation of sensory impressions. The normal person can be convinced of this deception. The mirage, for example, is an optical illusion which has a starting point in an external stimulus. A hallucination is a deception of any of the five senses, in which there is no starting point, but it is fabricated in a disordered mind. Illustrations of hallucinations are the hearing of voices when none are present, smelling of odors, and seeing of visions in a vacuum. With the elementary understanding of fundamental symptoms of mental diseases as a point of departure, let us consider the cases of Muhammad, Jesus, and Moses, 
three of the most influential prophets in the history of civilization. Mohammed. Of the three, Mohammed should be considered before the others for several reasons. First, there is no question regarding the actual existence of Mohammed. We know that he was born at Mecca about 571 AD and died at Medina on June the 8th, 632 AD. From the facts of his life and the religion which he founded, we are able to see the manner in which legend and superstition were superimposed on its original simple form. The historical records of his life and teachings are easier of access since he is nearer our time than the other two prophets, and we can get a better understanding of his character. It was Gibbon who said, It may be expected that I should balance his faults and his virtues, that I should decide whether the title of enthusiast or impostor more properly belongs to that extraordinary man. At the distance of twelve centuries, I darkly contemplate his shade through a cloud of incense. In attempting to peer through this cloud of religious incense, we find the following facts. In the city of Mecca, probably in August in the year 571, Mohammed, the Prophet of Allah, was born. There seems little doubt that he was descended from those lofty Quraysh, whose opposition, which at first nearly succeeded in holding his name in perpetual oblivion, eventually caused him to emerge into the light of deathless fame. His birth was surrounded by all manner of signs and omens, we are told. The labor of his mother, Amina, was entirely painless. Earthquakes loosed the bases of mountains and caused great bodies of water, whose names were unfortunately not specified, to wither away or overflow. The sacred fire of Zoroaster, which, under the jealous care of the Magi, had spouted ceaseless flames for nearly a thousand years, was extinguished. All the idols in the world, except the Kaaba, tumbled to earth. Immediately after the babe was born, an ethereal light dazzled the surrounding territory, and on the very moment when his eyes were first opened, he lifted them to heaven and exclaimed, God is great, there is no God but Allah, and I am his prophet. All these poetic fancies have been appropriately denounced by Christian scribes, who have claimed that nature would never have dignified the birth of a pagan like Mohammed with such marvelous prodigies as undoubtedly attended the advent of Christ. However, Mohammed was born shortly after the death of his father. At the age of six his mother died also, and he spent the first ten years among the Bedouins under the care of a foster mother named Halima. At the age of four it was noticed that the child had signs of convulsive seizures, which later commentators thought were of an epileptic nature. He was brought up under the care of his uncle, Abu Talib, and his early manhood was spent in caring for the flock and in attending caravan expeditions. When the prophet was twenty-five years old, his uncle secured for him a position with a caravan owned by a wealthy widow, Khadija. Thanks to Mohammed's keen business sense, the caravan was highly successful, and he was induced to personally report his success to Khadija. That lady, a wealthy widow of forty years and the mother of three children, was highly pleased at Mohammed's story. 
as she listened to the proof of his business ability and fondly scanned his large, nobly formed head, his curling coal-black hair, his piercing eyes and his comely form, it naturally occurred to her that this vigorous and handsome young fellow would make an excellent successor to her deceased husband. She had her way, and they were married. During the next fifteen years, Mohammed led a tranquil life. His future was provided for, and he had plenty of leisure to occupy himself as he chose. In these years, Mohammed and his wife continued to be conventional worshippers of idols, who nightly performed rites in honor of various gods and goddesses, among whom were Allah and his female consoler, Al-Lat. And so, by the year 610, Mohammed, at the age of forty, was nothing more than a respectable but unknown tradesman, who had experienced no extraordinary crises, whose few existing utterances were dull and insipid, and whose life seemed destined to remain as insignificant and unsung as any other Arab. At this time, he began to retire for days at a time to a cave in the foothills of Mount Hira, a hill several miles north of Mecca. Meanwhile, his business languished. As the months passed, he still continued to act in the same incomprehensible manner. It was noticed that little by little certain members of his immediate family attended him to his refuge or gathered with him in some one of their houses. This continued for several years, until it was rumored that Mohammed the camel driver was confidently claiming the honor of having made a great discovery, namely, that there is no God but Allah, and Mohammed is his prophet. By what process of thought had Mohammed come to exalt Allah not merely above all Arabian gods, but above the gods of all times? Furthermore, why was he so certain of his own intimate association with Allah? We can understand this if we consider Mohammed in the light of a victim of mental disease. One account informs us that as Muhammad was wandering near the cave at Mount Hira, an angel from the sky cried to him, O Muhammad, I am Gabriel. He was terrified and hurried home to impart his experience to his wife. I see a light, he said to his wife, and I hear a sound. I fear that I am possessed. This idea was most distressing to a pious man. He became pale, haggard, and wandered about on the hill near Mecca, crying for help to God. More than once he drew near the edge of the cliff and was tempted to hurl himself down, and so put an end to his misery at once. He lived much in the open air, gazing on the stars, watching the dry ground grow green beneath the gentle rain. He pondered also on the religious legends of the Jews, which he had heard related on his journeys. And as he looked and thought, the darkness was dispelled, the clouds disappeared, and the vision of God in solitary grandeur rose within his mind, and there came upon him an impulse to speak of God. There came upon him a belief that he was a messenger of God sent to earth to restore the religion of Abraham, which the pagan Arabs had polluted with idolatry, the Jews in corrupting their holy books. At the same time he heard a voice, and sometimes he felt a noise in his ears, like the tinkling of bells, or a low, deep hum, as if bees were swarming around his head. At this period of his life, 
the chapters of the Quran were delivered in throes of pain. The paroxysms were preceded by depression of spirit. His face became clouded, his extremities turned cold, he shook like a man in an agi, and he called for coverings. His face assumed an expression horrible to see. The vein between his eyebrows became distended, his eyes were fixed, his head moved to and fro as if he was conversing, and then he gave forth the oracle, or sura. The hitherto mentally and emotionally normal trader, husband, and father was thus suddenly swept off his feet and carried irresistibly away on a mighty tide. His perturbed spirit now soared to the heights of heaven, now plunged into the chasms of hell. Moments of ethereal bliss would be followed by periods of profoundest melancholy. It is related that the angel Gabriel, who thus far had labored only in the field of Christian endeavor, was chosen by Allah as bearer of the divine revelation to Muhammad. One day, while the trader poet was wrestling with his doubts among the foothills of Mount Hira, he saw a wondrous apparition floating downward on celestial wings. Thou art God's prophet, and I am Gabriel, announced the awe-inspiring guest, before he departed to receive the blessing of Allah for having so successfully executed the heavenly command. Gabriel was a very valuable ambassador, for through the to-and-fro journeying of this indefatigable messenger, Allah was able to remain at ease in heaven, thus keeping up the appearance of intangible, majestic remoteness so necessary for dignified gods. And thus Mohammed came into his own. From that moment, Mohammed looked upon himself as Allah's vice-regent, through whom Allah's incontestable decrees were to be given to man. Mohammed's every doubt had now vanished. His soul was completely at ease, and from his lips there burst the wildly exultant chant, There is no God but Allah, and Mohammed is his prophet. The obliging Gabriel, he said, had borne him on a winged steed over Medina to the temple of Jerusalem, and from there he continued his celestial journey until he was carried completely up out of this world to those ethereal realms of bliss where the seven heavens are. Up and up he flew while he carefully noted the order of precedence of those prophets whose model he had proclaimed himself to be. Jesus and John were in the second or third, he was not quite sure which. Moses was in the sixth, while Abraham alone had the supreme distinction of residing in the seventh heaven. There, at the apex of indescribable glory, Mohammed had entered the awful presence of his Maker, who, after some chit-chat, charged him to see that all Muslims should hereafter prostrate themselves in prayer toward the Temple of Solomon five times a day. The truth of this narrative rests upon two solid facts. From that day to this, all devout Muslims have continued to bow themselves five times daily in prayer, and skeptics may still see, upon the rock where stands the Mosque of Omar in Jerusalem, the identical print of the Prophet's foot where he leapt upon the heavenly charger. His thoughts, whether conceived in a white heat of frenzy, or with deliberate coolness and sly calculations for the main chance, were probably not written down in any definite manner during his lifetime. 
it is not even certain whether he could read or write. He delighted in the appellation, the illiterate prophet, possibly on account of his humility, and possibly because he knew that inspired ignorance had been the indisputable prerogative of all successful prophets in the past. Indeed, the very fact that he was unlearned was rightly supposed to increase the miraculous nature of his revelations. As he tossed the divine emancipations from his lips, they were sometimes recorded by hireling scribes upon palm leaves, leather, stones, the shoulder blades or ribs of camels and goats, but often they were not immediately written down at all. The prophet would go around spouting forth his utterances to his followers, who, trained from infancy to memorize verses and songs of every sort with infallible precision, would piously commit them to memory. Such is the Quran, and through its instrumentality, Allah the wise, the only wise, revealed his immutable decrees, to the good, the rewards of a paradise that utterly beggared the Christian heaven, to the bad, the punishments of a hell that contained an infinity of such refined tortures of heat and even of cold as neither the most imaginatively gifted Jew or Christian had yet conceived. Reinach aptly states, It is humiliating to the human intellect to think that this mediocre literature has been the subject of innumerable commentaries and that millions of men are still wasting time in absorbing it. Over 160 million are adherents of the Quran. In an objective analysis, excluding the emotional factors of religious bias, Muhammad would as unquestionably be considered a victim of mental disturbances as an individual living in our own day and manifesting the same symptoms. Muhammad was the subject of illusions, hallucinations, and delusions. He had suicidal tendencies, and he had alternating periods of exhilaration and depression. To simply assert that he was an epileptic does not explain these symptoms, for epileptics cannot throw a fit at will. However, we know that 10% of epileptics develop mental diseases, no particular psychosis, but a loss of mental and moral sense. There are two types of individuals who can produce seizures such as Mohammed was wont to evoke at will. One type is the hysterical, and the other is that degraded individual who, for the sake of collecting alms, will place a piece of soap in his mouth, enter a crowded street, fall to the ground, and proceed to foam at the mouth and twist and contort himself as an epileptic does. That is the charlatan, the faker, and that brings us to the second aspect of his, Muhammad's, character. Outside of Arabia, paganism was in general disrepute. The dissolute and declining Romans were cracking lewd jokes in the very faces of their gods. The myriad followers of Confucius, Buddha, and Zoroaster were either too remote or too helpless to matter in one way or another. Talmudic Judaism and Oriental Christianity despised idolatry and worshipped the same Jehovah, even though they disputed with each other, and indeed among themselves, concerning the various attributes, amorous pursuits, and lineal descendants of the Godhead. Now to one who chose to regard himself as a prophet, monotheism had distinct advantages over polytheism. In the first place, 
It was rather confusing to attempt to obey the behests of conflicting deities. In the second place, the different prophets of Jehovah in Judaism and Christendom had, so far as Muhammad knew, been uniformly successful, for he was familiar with the glorious history of Abraham, Moses, and David, and he always held to the perverse conception that Jesus was not crucified. However deep in the dumps prophets may have been on occasion, they have invariably believed one thing. Victory for their particular cause would inevitably come. Neither an unbroken series of worldly failures nor the chastisement of his God have ever shaken the faith of a first-class prophet in himself or, as he would doubtless prefer to say, in his divinity. Arabia, broken, unorganized, inglorious, idolistic Arabia, obviously lacked one supreme being whose prerogative was greater than all other supreme beings and that being, in turn, needed a messenger to exploit his supremacy. The messengers who had served Jehovah had certainly prospered well, but Jehovah himself appeared to be on the decline. His unity was steadily disintegrating into a paradoxical trinity. Why, therefore, not give Allah, the leading icon in Arabia, an opportunity? Such considerations quite probably never entered the head of Muhammad with any definiteness, yet his behavior for the rest of his days seems to indicate that these or similar conceptions were subconsciously egging him on. Of certain facts, moreover, he was definitely aware. He may have had little or no formal education, but his memory was retentive and capacious, and his caravan journeys together with the scores of conversations he had held at the yearly fairs, as well as at Mecca, with many cultivated strangers, had packed his mind with a mass of highly valuable matter. In these ways, he had learned both the strength and the weakness of the Jews and the Christians, their fanatical enthusiasm and despairs, their spasmodic attempts to proselytize, as well as the widespread defection from their faiths. Since his conception of religion was largely personal, for he looked upon Moses, Jesus, and the rest of the prophets as merely capable men who had founded and promulgated religions, and since Arabia had no preeminent ruler, why should he not seize the reins of power and carry on the great tradition of prophethood? What a magnificent opportunity beckoned, and how fortunate that he had been the first to recognize the call. By keeping only what was best of the Arabic faith, the Kaaba and the Black Stone, and by a judicious selection of the most feasible ideas which lay embedded in Jewish and Christian precepts, he might establish a code that would supersede all others, and then might dictate to all Arabs alike. What prophets had done, he would also do, and do better. Such are the thoughts of a charlatan and a demagogue, if Mohammed actually had such ideas, we can never know, but a study of his further actions and conquests surely shows that he must have had something of the same trend of thought in mind. His fits before the oncoming of a new surah have been mentioned. Eventually he so perfected his technique that he could throw a cataleptic fit and produce a message without any previous preparation. 
he would drum up a crowd with his ludicrous snortings and puffings until the resounding cry, Inspiration hath descended on the prophet, assured him that he had a sufficiently large audience to warrant the outspurting of a new surah. While in a room that was obviously empty, he declared that all seats were occupied by angels. He cultivated suave and benign expression. He flattered and astounded his followers by telling them facts which he had presumably acquired through private information. He took the most painstaking care of his person, painting his eyes and perfuming his entire body daily, and wearing his hair long. Ayesha, one of the prophet's wives, remarked that the prophet loved three things, women, scent, and food and that he had his heart's content of the first two, but not of the last. In fact, Mohammed himself argued that these two innocuous diversions intensified the ecstasy of his prayers. In the Quran's description of heaven, so much emphasis was put on food that a jolly Jew objected on the grounds that such continual feasting must of necessity be followed by a purgation. The prophet, however, swore that it would not even be necessary to blow the nose in paradise, since all bodily impurities would be carried off by a perspiration as odoriferous as musk. When his wife Khadija was dying, he comforted her with the assurance that she, together with three other well-known women, the Virgin Mary, Potiphar's wife, and Kultum, Moses' sister, would occupy his chamber in paradise. On Muhammad's escape to Medina, a long series of holy wars began which, like all holy wars, were characterized by extreme brutality. The Quran of the period contains such pacific doctrines as these. The sword is the key of heaven and hell. A drop of blood shed in the cause of God, a night spent in arms, is of more avail than two months of fasting or prayer. Whosoever falls in battle, his sins are forgiven. At the day of judgment his wounds shall be resplendent as vermilion, and odoriferous as musk, and the loss of limbs shall be supplied by the wings of angels and cherubim. God loveth not the transgressors. Kill them wheresoever ye find them. Mohammed, no less than any other religiously-minded emperors and tsars, appears to have conducted himself in battle according to the wise principle that a head without a halo is infinitely more desirable than a halo without a head. Yet he was profoundly convinced that the ultimate victory of Islam depended upon the sword. The Quran of this period breathes defiance against the enemies of Islam on almost every page. Its profuse maledictions, once confined to the evildoers of Mecca, now include all unbelievers everywhere. When Muhammad once had captured a fortress inhabited by a tribe of Jews, his judgment was, The men shall be put to death, the women and children sold into slavery, and the spoil divided amongst the army. Then trenches were dug, some seven hundred men were marched out, forced to seat themselves in rows along the top of the trenches, beheaded, and then tumbled into a long gaping grave. Meanwhile, the prophet looked on, until, tiring of the monotonous spectacle, he departed to amuse himself with a Jewess whose husband had just perished. He continued these conquests until, at his death in 632, he was the master of nearly all Arabia and revered almost as a god 
Yet when Omar, his first lieutenant, captured Jerusalem in 636, he ensured the conquered Jews and Christians free exercise of their religion and the security of their persons and their goods. But when the Crusaders took Jerusalem in 1099, they massacred all the Mohammedans and burnt the Jews alive. It is estimated that 70,000 persons were put to death in less than a week to attest the superior morality of the Christian faith. The successors of Mohammed, the Caliphs, in less than a century conquered Syria, Egypt, Babylonia, Persia, Turkestan, Spain, Northern Africa, Sicily, and Southern France. Today, 160 million are followers of Muhammad, a man who began as a humble religious leader and ended as an adroit politician and powerful general, a man who hid during battles, who often broke faith with friend and foe alike, a charlatan and demagogue of general intellectual incompetency, and a victim of mental disease. Jesus When we come to consider the life of Jesus, a far different and more intricate problem is met with. None but the most illogical and purposely ignorant of religious apologists will admit that the life of Jesus has been misrepresented by his followers to suit their particular aims. Had the followers of the moralist Epictetus or the Rabbi Hillel written lives of those two teachers, they would be quite similar to the reputed life of Jesus. The moral sentiments attributed to Christ in the Gospels were borrowed from the Jewish rabbis and the numerous cults that flourished in that age. The birth, death, and resurrection of Christ is quite similar to the myths of that time concerning the savior gods Adonis, Isis, Osiris, Attis, Mithra, and a multitude of others. For a full exposition of the subject, the reader is referred to E. Carpenter, Pagan and Christian Creeds. The evidence for the point of view that Jesus was actually a historic character is so slight that such scholars as J. M. Robertson, Professor W. B. Smith, Professor Drews, Dr. P. L. Cochaud, and many others deny the historic reality of Christ on the ground that the Gospels are totally unreliable as history, that Paul bears no witness to a human Jesus, and that the pagan and Jewish writers are strangely silent about the Messiah Jesus. There are in existence only twenty-four lines from Jewish and pagan writers referring to Jesus. These include a reference in Tacitus's Annals, and brief references by Suetonius and Pliny the Younger. These three references are considered spurious by many scholars, and even if they were all to be accepted, it would mean that the total pagan testimony as to the historicity of Jesus is confined to three very vague and brief references written a century after the reputed time of Jesus. The longest reference to Jesus is in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus. The passage referring to Jesus in his Jewish Antiquities has been considered as spurious even by conservative scholars. 
A group of scholars has always deemed it very probable, however, that this spurious reference may have replaced an unfavorable reference to Jesus in the original. Working on this theory, Dr. Eisler has purged of interpolations this work by a painstaking and scholarly investigation. However, it must be pointed out that with regard to Jesus' actual existence, what divided the Christians and non-Christians was not the question whether or not Jesus existed, but the vastly more pertinent and essentially different question whether or not the obscure Galilean carpenter, executed by a Roman governor as King of the Jews, was really a superhuman being who had overcome death, the longed-for savior of mankind, foretold by the prophets, the only begotten Son of God himself. To the Jews, Jesus was indeed a heretic and an agitator of the lower orders. To the pagans, he was a magician who, through sham miracles and with subversive words, had incited the people to rebellion and as a leader of a gang of desperate men had attempted to seize the royal crown of Judea, as others had done before him and after him. The non-Christian writers referred to Jesus as a wizard, a demagogue, and a rebel. We are fortunate at this date to have brought to our attention a masterful work by Dr. Robert Eisler, a work which will be as revolutionary to the study of Christianity as was Darwin's Origin of the Species in the realms of science, and similarly the former work will be the basis upon which much progress will be made in a great field. Dr. Eisler unfolds a great mass of hitherto unknown information concerning the life, the actual appearance, and the doings of Jesus. He definitely establishes the proof of Jesus' actual existence, and makes clear many hitherto obscure utterances and deeds of this prophet. The descriptions which follow are based on the material in this work of Dr. Eisler, The Messiah Jesus. In the complete statement of Josephus on Pilate's governorship, we find, At that time there appeared a certain man of magical power, if it is permissible to call him a man, whom certain Greeks call a son of God, but his disciples the true prophet, said to raise the dead and heal all diseases. His nature and his form were human, a man of simple appearance, mature age, small in stature, three cubits high, hunchbacked, with a long face, long nose, and meeting eyebrows, so that they who see him might be affrighted, with scanty hair, but with a parting in the middle of his head, after the manner of the Nazarites, and with an undeveloped beard. Only in semblance was he superhuman, for he gave some astonishing and spectacular exhibitions. But again, if I look at his commonplace physique, I, for one, cannot call him an angel. And everything whatsoever he wrought, through some invisible power, he wrought through some word and a command. Some said of him, Our first lawgiver is risen again, and displays many healings and magic arts. Others said, He is sent from God. Howbeit in many things he disobeyed the law, and kept not the Sabbath according to our father's custom. And many of the multitude followed after him, and accepted his teachings, and many souls were excited, thinking that thereby the Jewish tribes might be freed from Roman hands. But it was his custom most of the time to abide over against the city on the Mount of Olives, 
and there too he bestowed his healings upon the people. And there assembled unto him of helpers one hundred and fifty, and a multitude of the mob. Now when they saw his power, how he accomplished whatsoever he would by a magic word, and when they had made known to him their will, that he should enter into the city, cut down the Roman troops, and Pilate, and rule over us, he disdained us not, and having all flocked into Jerusalem, they raised an uproar against Pilate, uttering blasphemies alike against God and against Caesar. And when knowledge of it came to the Jewish leaders, they assembled together with the high priests, and spake, We are powerless and too weak to withstand the Romans. But, seeing that the bow is bent, we will go and impart to Pilate what we have heard, and we shall be safe, lest he hear of it from others, and we be robbed of our substance, and ourselves slaughtered, and the children of Israel dispersed. And they went and imparted the matter to Pilate, and he sent and had many of the multitude slain. And he had that wonder-worker brought up, and after instituting an inquiry concerning him, he passed his sentence upon him. He is a malefactor, a rebel, a robber, thirsting for the crown. And they took him and crucified him according to the custom of their fathers. Such is the history of Jesus, as contrasted with the myth of Jesus in the New Testament. This description of the actual appearance of Jesus for the first time gives us a clue to the mental and physical characteristics of this prophet. It must be borne in mind that at the time that Jesus achieved manhood, his people and his nation were under the complete domination of Rome, and oppressed by a race whom the Jews looked upon as cursed barbarians and idolaters. The country was overrun with religious zealots who stormed over the cities and villages, preaching the immediate destruction of the world and the proximity of the long-awaited coming of the Messiah. The fact that Jesus had to bear the hard fate of a deformed body may go far in helping to explain this remarkable character. It is common knowledge how frequently weak and deformed children have to suffer from the cruelty and neglect of environment, a factor which cannot but produce a peculiar reaction on the childish mind which has a far-reaching effect in later life. This accounts for Jesus' indifference towards his mother and brothers, of a delicate constitution. He might have suffered from insults a great deal more than the others, which throws some light on the severe punishment demanded by Jesus for comparatively harmless insults. Under such circumstances, it is easy to explain how every neighbor and next of kin, although to the weak naturally an enemy, came to be included in the sphere of that all-embracing love which is the nucleus of Jesus' teaching. For the cripple has to face the dilemma either of warping everything into a powerful, misanthropic hatred, or else to overcome this feeling of revenge for the high moral superiority of a Plato, Mendelssohn, or a Kant. Jesus chose the latter of the two courses, and we may well imagine that it was not at Golgotha that he had the first occasion to cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the case of Jesus, the whole paradoxical thought of his being the vicarious sin-offering and world-redeemer can best be understood as the solution proposed in the Deutero-Isaiah of the question which had occupied Job, to wit, why must the innocent suffer? 
If the maimed in body refused to consider himself as forsaken by his God, as a sinner punished for some guilt of which he is unconscious, he cannot but assume that there is such a thing as a vocation to suffering, and believe in the inscrutable plan of salvation in which his own life and sufferings are called upon to play some part. Nothing but this conviction of being thus elected can afford him the desired compensation for his depressed and hampered ego. A repressed nature of this type will, in seeking such a compensation, escape from the harsh reality into the realm of dreams. This is the basis of what the physician recognizes in hysteria, and in the mental disease termed dementia praecox. The glorious daydreams of the millennium, the time of bliss, when all strife and all hate will disappear from the earth, when all the crooked will be made straight, find their best explanation in this peculiarity. They console the suffering and heavy laden for the bitter reality which, in the light of the old messianic prophecies, appears only as a nightmare, promptly to be chased away by the dawn of a new day, a new, a perfect era. The Davidic Jesus, in spite or rather because of his servile form, feels that he is himself the secret incognito king of that wonderful realm, the monarch whom God sometime in the future, nay, right here, and before the passing of the present generation, will transform, while at the same time revealing his kingdom. It is but natural that in the mental development of such individuals they should seek to be great, glorious, and to achieve the supernatural, since they themselves are denied the ordinary satisfactions. If, in addition, such individuals believe that they have had a divine call, if the disability of the body so preys on the mind that the sensitive structure gives way to delusions, then there results an aberration from the normal and usual processes of thought. To be sure, not the rabid, violent form of mental disease, but yet a deviation from the normal manner of thinking. Such was the case with the prophet Jesus. Afflicted in body, but endowed with a sensitive mind, exposed to an unusual environment of seething unrest and political ferment, and firmly convinced in the current fancies regarding the approaching destruction of the world, the conquest of the evil power, and the reign of God, Jesus became the subject of a delusion that he was the only true Messiah who had been presaged by the prophets of old. The greatest difficulty encountered in every attempt to present the life and work of Jesus according to the evidence of his own words, preserved in the sources, is the sharp, irreconcilable contradiction between the so-called fire-and-sword sayings on the one side and the beatitudes on the peacemakers and the meek, the prohibition to kill, to be angry, to resist wrong, and the command to love one's enemy contained in the Sermon on the Mount on the other. In the early period of his messianic career, the period of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was a thorough quietist. But if we realize that the delusion that he was the Messiah had entered his mind so vehemently that he firmly believed that the end of the world was imminent, and that it was his duty to save as many as possible, we can understand his acquiescence to the violence which followed. Moreover, he was clearly forced to the fatal road by the idea that he must set on foot a movement of hundreds of thousands, 
the picture of the exodus from Egypt with the fantastic figures given in the Old Testament. The messianic rising he was to initiate could not be regarded as realized if he left the country with a band of some hundred elect. If he wished, however, to put at least two-fifths of the population in motion, the method of sending out messengers had proved altogether unsatisfactory. He must try the effect of his own words in a place where, and at a time when, he was sure to reach the greatest multitude of his people. That could only be in Jerusalem, at the time of the great pilgrimage, at the feast of the Passover. Moreover, the desired result could only be obtained, of course, if he openly proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Then it was that the prophet of quiet reversed his words and armed his disciples. Jesus was fully aware of the illegality of this arming of his disciples, and of his own direction to purchase a weapon. Nonetheless, he saw no escape from this bitter necessity. The prediction of the prophet must be fulfilled, according to which the righteous servant of the Lord must be numbered among the lawless transgressors. True it is that he did not lead the revolt himself, but tarried with his disciples at the Last Supper at a house nearby the fighting. When he becomes aware that his secret hiding place on the Mount of Olives has been betrayed, Jesus hopes for a miracle from God up to the last. Captured, he is led away to the palace of the high priest's family on the Mount of Olives, where, while Jesus is questioned by the high priest, Peter, unrecognized, warms himself at the fire in the courtyard and thrice denies his master. He was then taken to the Roman governor's court-martial, where sentence was passed, and he was led off to the place of execution, and there deserted by all of his followers except a few Galilean women. Then was heard the last despairing cry of the desolate dying martyr, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Thus ended the career of this deformed prophet with the sensitive, deluded mind a martyr who attempted only to effect reforms amongst his own people in his own small locality. Moses With regard to the life, the deeds, and the words of the prophet Moses, we have no history, only myth and legend. The existence of Moses is not demonstrated by the biblical books, which are falsely ascribed to him, yet we cannot be certain that such a character did not exist. In any event, we must judge his character from the writings ascribed to him. The legend of the child cast upon the waters is to be found in the folklore of all nations. This legend concerning Moses relates that one day Pharaoh's daughter, while bathing with her maids in the Nile, found a Hebrew child exposed on the waters in obedience to a new decree. She adopted the boy, gave him an Egyptian name, and brought him up in her palace as a prince. She had him educated, and the fair inference is that he was schooled in the culture of the Egyptians. The royal lady made of the Hebrew slave child an Egyptian gentleman. Yet, although his face was shaved, and outwardly he appeared to be an Egyptian, at heart he remained a Hebrew. One day, when he was grown, Moses went slumming amongst his own people to look at their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. He was so overcome by passion at this scene that he killed the man on the spot. The crime became known. 
there was a hue and cry raised, and the king had a search made for Moses with the intention of slaying him. With all hope of a career in Egypt ended, Moses escaped to the peninsula of Sinai and entered the family of an Arab sheikh. The peninsula of Sinai lies clasped between two arms of the Red Sea. It is a wilderness of mountains covered with a thin, almost transparent coating of vegetation, which serves as pasture to the Bedouin flocks. Among the hills that crown the high plateau, there is one which, at the time of Moses, was called the Mount of God. It was holy ground to the Egyptians and also to the Arabs, who ascended as pilgrims and drew off their sandals when they reached the top. Now is it strange that Sinai should have excited reverence and dread? It is indeed a weird land. Vast and stern stand the mountains, with their five granite peaks pointing to the sky. Avalanches like those of the Alps, but of sand, not of snow, rush down their naked sides with a clear tinkling sound. A peculiar property resides in the air. The human voice can be heard at a surprising distance and swells out into a reverberating roar, and sometimes there rises from among the hills a dull booming sound like the distant firing of heavy guns. Let us attempt to realize what Moses must have felt when he was driven out of Egypt into such a harsh and rugged land. Imagine this man, the adopted son of a royal personage, who was accustomed to all the splendor of the Egyptian court, to the busy turmoil of the streets of the metropolis, to reclining in a carpeted gondola, or staying with a noble at his country house. In a moment all is changed. He dwells in a tent, alone on the mountainside, a shepherd with a crook in his hand. He is married to the daughter of a barbarian. His career is at an end. He realizes that never again will he enter that palace where once he was received with honor, where now his name is uttered only with contempt. Never again will he discourse with grave and learned men in his favorite haunts, and never again will he see the people of his tribe whom he loves and for whom he endures this miserable fate. They will suffer, but he will not help them. They will mourn, but he will not hear them. In his dreams he hears and sees them. He hears the whistling of the lash and the convulsive sobs and groans. He sees the poor slaves toiling in the fields and sees the daughters of Israel carried off to the harem with struggling arms and streaming hair. He sees the chamber of the woman in labor, the seated, shuddering, writhing form, the mother struggling against maternity, dreading her release, for the king's officer is standing by the door, ready, as soon as a male child is born, to put it to death. The Arabs who gave him shelter were also children of Abraham, and they related to him legends of the ancient days. They told him of the patriarchs who lay buried in Canaan with their wives. They spoke of the God whom his fathers had worshipped. Then, as one who returns to a long-lost home, the Egyptian returned to the faith of the desert, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As he wandered on the mountain heights, he looked to the west and saw a desert. Beyond it lay Canaan, the home of his ancestors, a land of peace and soon to be a land of hope. For now, new ideas rose tumultuously within him. He began to see visions and to dream dreams. He heard voices and beheld no form. 
he saw trees which blazed with fire and yet were not consumed. He became a prophet and entered into the ecstatic stage, that is, he began to have illusions and hallucinations. Dwelling on the misery and suffering of his people, his mind becomes deluded with the idea that he has been chosen by his newfound God to liberate his people from the tyranny of their oppressors. Meanwhile, the king had died, and a new pharaoh had ascended the throne. Moses returns to Egypt to carry out the great designs which he had formed. He announces to the elders of his people, to the heads of the houses, and the sheikhs of the tribes, that the God of Abraham had appeared to him in Sinai and had revealed his true name. It was Jehovah. He had been sent by Jehovah to Egypt to bring away his people, to lead them to Canaan. In company with his brother Aaron, Moses asked Pharaoh to liberate the children of Israel, but after several vain attempts to dazzle Pharaoh with his skill as a magician, he was met with an obstinate refusal. Moses, before Pharaoh, descends to the level of a vulgar sorcerer, armed with a magic wand, whose performances only draw our smiles. This charlatanry having been unsuccessful, the wizard connives with his accomplice Jehovah to have inflicted upon the Egyptians the ten plagues. Then the loving and kind father, having killed innumerable Egyptians, as the story relates, so terrorizes the minds of his other children in Egypt that Pharaoh is finally convinced that he must allow the chosen people to leave his domain. The Israelites quitted Egypt, carrying away with them the gold and silver of their oppressors. They then entered the desert. The magic art of Moses enabled them to pass dry-footed through the Red Sea, whereas the pharaoh who was pursuing them was engulfed with his whole army. Again, the chosen people are liberated by means of the death of multitudes of Egyptians. Truly, Jehovah at that time must have loved them well, or did some other deity form the Egyptians. It matters not that the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh are romantic incidents, not only unknown to the Egyptian texts, but even to the earliest of Hebrew prophets. It matters not, for the story is the most important thing, even though it is an inspired story, inspired by the Jehovah who tortured and killed the Egyptians to show how well he loved his people. This Wild West story, with its multitudes of slaughters, proceeds to the wilderness of Sinai, and there again the prophet Moses goes into a secret seance and finally announces that God has delivered laws to him, which had been issued from the clouds. What a great showman was this prophet! Barnum must have been a devoted admirer of Moses, for Moses was the first to create the two-ring circus. For these laws given by Jehovah are described in two places, and the circus varies in both places. Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 are the two texts which differ considerably. To further convince the children of Israel, Moses tells them the story of how he had cajoled Jehovah into allowing him to see what no man had hitherto seen, the form of Jehovah. For it appears that Jehovah was so pleased with this murderer, charlatan, and wizard that he allowed him to glimpse his hind quarters. At least Jehovah had a sense of humor. What a bag of tricks this prophet had at his command! 
The prophet waves his arms and tugs at his gown, and lo and behold, the Lord has spoken. The following is a specimen of the revelations which the Lord is supposed to have dictated to Moses. Leviticus 14.25 The priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering, and put it upon the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour of the oil into the palm of his own left hand, and shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. Surely it must have been a god with a superior mentality who dictated this, for it surpasses our feeble comprehension. And we can well imagine Jehovah's wrath when the priest confuses his right and left. Twirling his arms again, Moses gives forth this oracle, Numbers fifteen thirty-seven to 41 And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them a fringe upon the corner of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of each corner a cord of blue, etc., etc., Jehovah chooses blue as the divine color, royal purple, divine blue. Then there is the familiar myth of the prophet's tapping of the rock to bring forth water in the desert, the story of the manna, the tale of the doves. Thus can the fabled life of Moses be divided into two stages, the early period of illusions, hallucinations, and delusions, and the later stage of wizardry, charlatanry, and demagoguery. Neither must we think that we moderns are the first to peer through this sham, for what the Israelites thought of these laws appears from the bitter criticism of Moses and Aaron, which the Haggadah put into the mouth of the rebel Korah. When we were given the Ten Commandments, each of us learnt them directly from Mount Sinai. There were only the Ten Commandments, and we heard no orders about offering cake, or gifts to priests, or tassels. It was only in order to usurp the dominion for himself, and to impart honor to his brother Aaron, that Moses added all this. Moses, Jesus, and Mohammed, these prophets whose adherents number hundreds of millions, about whom there has been built up these vast systems of theology, what is there of the divine in their characters? What supernatural in their deeds? What wisdom poured forth from their lips, which did not come from other philosophers? What immense structures have been founded on these shifting sands, on this morass of ignorance and childish fable? How long can these structures endure, aided by the bolstering up of the theologists, and how long must it be before the light of reason will pierce these foundations of blindness and force them to topple over? How much longer before humanity can begin to build on a sound foundation? Moses, Jesus, and Mohammed, Revolutionists three. Moses at the head of a weak, squabbling, and disgruntled group of Hebrew desert marauders, Jesus sanctioning the insurrection against Rome, Mohammed at the head of his Arabian marauders. If the freethinkers firmly believe that in them dwell the hope for a better humanity, for an exhilarated progress, for universal freedom and liberty for all mankind, and emancipation from fear and superstition, then they too must destroy. 
they must first undo the wrong before they can proceed to build on a right foundation. They must build on the cornerstone that all religion is human in its origin, erroneous in its theories, and ridiculous in its threats and rewards. Religion is the greatest impediment to the progress of human happiness. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Necessity of Atheism Soundness of a Foundation for a Belief in a Deity It is better to bury a delusion and forget it than to insult its memory by retaining the name when the thing has perished. F. H. Bradley A thousand miraculous happenings have been honored by the testimony of the ancients which in later times under a more exacting and skeptical scrutiny can no longer be believed inherent in man's nature is his disposition to be gulled emotion is encouraged to supplant cool reason fanaticism to supplant tolerance not by such means can our race be saved Llewellyn Powys. Our interplanetary visitor is firmly convinced that all religion, no matter what its antiquity or its modernity may be, is an invention of our groping earthly minds. It occurs to him that it would be interesting and proper to lay aside all theology, all creed, all the superficial trappings placed by man about his conceptions of a deity, and consider only the basic God idea. The literature on the subject revealed to him that even on this broad and basic principle not all religionists were agreed. He found a threefold classification. 1. Those who held to the belief in an anthropomorphic personal god who was benevolent, omniscient, and omnipotent. 2. Those who saw in the constitution of our universe an impersonal supreme power who had created the universe, but who had not given us any revelation, and thus has no need for worship by prayer and sacrifice. 3. Those who very recently conceived of the deity as a cosmic force, an ultimate, or as a mathematical or physical law. Such are the hypotheses of Jeans and Eddington. The Martian set about, therefore, with the principle that God is a hypothesis, and as such, stands in need of proof. 1. The Belief in a Personal God The Martian, as our guest, had by this time had ample opportunity to survey our civilization, and to acquaint himself with the things with which God, in his goodness, had endowed his earthly children. A proponent of a personal God informs him that his deity is an infinite personal being of consciousness, intelligence, will, good, unity, and beauty the supreme, the infinite personality, who was loving, benevolent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Like the American from Missouri, the visitor hastened to see for himself the marvelous workings of such an exalted being, for surely such a being, with such attributes as he was credited with, would certainly be in an excellent position to bestow great gifts upon his earthly children. 
The Martian is informed that the vast majority of our inhabitants, no matter what their geographical distribution may be, are suffering from a financial depression brought on by the last world war. War and cruelty are synonymous in the mind of our seeker for God, and immediately there arises a conflict between the conception of an omnipotent, all-wise and loving God, and one who would permit war and cruelty. Fearing that he has not comprehended the meaning of an omnipotent being, he turns to the lexicon for verification, only to learn that it means an all-powerful being. How then could an omnipotent being permit wholesale and private murder? Is he not rather a demon than a god? On the other hand, if this being is not omnipotent, then he is a useless god, and there is no need for all the fears which religion breeds, no need for creed and worship. Every war, particularly this last one, is an indictment of God. God's in his heaven, all's right with the world, is seemly only to the minds drugged with an irrational creed. If there is a god, he is quite careless of human well-being or human suffering. The deaths of a hundred thousand men mean no more to him than the deaths of a hundred thousand ants. A couple of million men locked in a death struggle on the battlefield is only a replica of the struggle that has been going on in the animal world throughout time. If there be a god, he made, he designed all this. He fashioned the hooks for the slaughter, the teeth for the tearing, the talons for destruction, and man, with his multiplied weapons of destruction, has but imitated his example. A world without God, and in which humanity is gradually learning the way to better things, is an inspiration to renewed effort after the right. A world such as this, with God, is enough to drive insane all with intelligence enough to appreciate the situation. Chapman Cohen, War, Civilization, and the Churches When the Martian investigated the annals of the World War, he found, despite the opportunities Providence had had of showing its benevolence, the affair of the sinking of the Lusitania, the torpedoing of hospital ships, vessels that were not engaged in fighting but in bringing home wounded men who had fought in God's cause, he found descriptions of the slaughter of men and women and children in air raids, and he naturally concludes that the providence of God is an insult to the earthly intelligence. Greatly disturbed, he picks up one of our newspapers, and the stories of hate and racial antagonism rear their ugly heads. These, together with jealousy and fear, seem to him to be the outstanding features of our attitudes. A benevolent, loving, omnipotent father, guiding our destinies, yet allowing such monstrosities to exist. The conundrum grows deeper as he proceeds. It is a bright day, and the Martian is aware of a headache brought on by the effort to understand the ways of earthlings, and therefore decides to drive through the city streets. Yet this drive affords him no relaxation, for on every side two diametrically opposed sights meet his keen eyes. Luxury and poverty. Poverty and starvation, yet the Lord's prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. No Martian father would allow his children to starve. If he did, the law would fine him and imprison him. 
Since these earthlings are neglected by their heavenly father and are powerless to indict him, the least they could do would be to stop paying tribute to him. If the god of these earthlings bothers not about them, why should they trouble about God? The son of God, who could once create a miraculous batch of fish to satisfy a few fishermen, can do nothing to help these starving millions. Aloud he muses, Is there no place on earth which is free from this contradiction? His automobile happens to stop in front of an immense edifice, marked Hospital and his curiosity is sufficiently aroused to cause him to alight and enter. The physician in charge courteously asks his distinguished visitor to inspect this refuge for those suffering with pain. He remembers that a religionist had told him that disease is a visitation of the Lord for our sins, in the same breath with which he had added that the Lord was loving and compassionate. If that were so, then this was the ideal place to witness the infinite goodness and compassion of the Creator of all earthlings. But the first scene to meet his gaze was that of a woman in childbirth. The torture, the excruciating pain, and the mental anguish of the human female before his eyes defied his Martian power of expression. This process of birth, it was explained to him, was not a pathological one, nor a disease, but a physiological function. To this the Martian could not refrain from replying, From your own words, doctor, it is readily understood that your women experience a torture more acute, more nerve-wracking, and of longer duration than your Jesus experienced during his crucifixion and your world commiserates and sheds oceans of tears when they contemplate the anguish of Jesus on the cross, but no mention is made of the agony which is the fate of every woman who brings another human being into this best of worlds. But, my dear Martian, exclaims the physician, the Heavenly Father has ordained that in anguish shall women bring forth their young. The other deliberated on the compassion of the benevolent father in silence, and continued on his rounds through the hospital. Nearby was the crib containing a baby of a few days, suffering with a congenital heart disease. The infant's lips were blue, so was the body blue, and the gasping for breath and heaving of the small chest were pitiful to behold. This infant, nonchalantly remarked the physician, was born with a greatly defective heart. It will live for a few days. It will thirst for air. It will have intense air hunger. The lungs will fill with fluid, and then it will drown in its own secretions. The Martian recalled the time he had plunged under the water and remained there too long. Vividly he remembered the thirst for air, the seeming bursting of the lungs, the compression and vice-like grip of the muscles of the throat and chest, and he could not help exclaiming, benevolent, compassionate being. The physician continued, This child, pointing to a beautiful, robust boy of ten years, was in perfect health until he fell in the street and received a minor cut which the parents treated with home remedies, but which in a few days was diagnosed as tetanus. And the doctor went on to explain that the compassion of the Lord is great when this occurs, for the child gets convulsions, the jaws become locked, and beads of cold sweat stand out on the child's forehead in his anguish. The convulsions increase in severity and in duration, so that finally they are continuous, and the child lies with the heels and back of the head only touching the bed, 
the rest of the body is arched. The convulsions then become so severe that the body is so bent backwards at times that the head and trunk touch the heels. The misery of such a child is sufficient to cause a physician to lose his reason. Again, the Martian murmurs, Verily, the compassion of the Lord is beyond understanding. The child in the next bed had just become paralyzed by an attack of poliomyelitis, infantile paralysis. The Martian observes how the Lord, in his compassion, saved a certain number of these children upon which he vents his anger for their sins, by inflicting upon them this hideous disease. He saves their lives, but to serve as an everlasting reminder, as a covenant between them and their Lord, he paralyzes their limbs. The spectacle of these children attempting to move, making intense effort to move paralyzed limbs, was the most revolting and heartbreaking sight that he had ever witnessed. This time, too, the Martian remarked, Verily, the Lord in his infinite wisdom and goodness, strange tasks does perform. The physician then informed him of the many men and women who have died of cancer. A large number of these individuals had reached a period in life where they could just afford to relax from their struggles for mere sustenance, men and women who had reached a calm lake after journeying through troubled and tortuous waters, who had fought the good fight and had won the just reward of resting after their labors. But no, the Lord must trouble them for their sins. A group of these sufferers is shown to the Martian, and the normal course of this disease is explained. This time, all he can do is to protest that he firmly asserts that not one of our savage chiefs, even were he of the most primitive tribe, of the cruelest imagination, of the most base and insane nature, would nor could conceive of such torture as the loving father conceived when he decided upon cancer as a visitation of our sins. The roasting of a witch alive is but a mere trifle compared to the long-drawn-out agony, the slow wasting, the anguish of a cancer patient watching himself sink to death. And when death mercifully releases this sufferer from his hellish torture, the preacher murmurs, Lord, thy will be done. The Martian talks for a few moments with a sufferer from this disease and ascertains that the latter is a devout and true religionist that he has been a good moral churchgoer and has lived strictly according to the tenets of his creed, that he firmly and passionately believes that he has lived so that he will merit the reward of heaven, an everlasting sojourn in a land where there is no pain and suffering. And yet this devout religionist, when he was informed that he had an incurable cancer, traveled the length and breadth of his land from one surgeon to another, allowing himself to be cut to pieces in order that he might remain on this earth but a moment longer, to stay and suffer the tortures of the damned when he might go to heaven and get his reward in the land where there is no pain. I wonder, mused the Martian, did the grim specter of death finally instill a grain of skepticism into his mind? Later, in the quiet of his chambers, he reviews the day's impressions. Cruelty, hate, fear, jealousy, racial antagonism, poverty, luxury, disease, pain, superstition, church, religion, and intolerance. If we suppose that the universe is the creation of an omnipotent and benevolent God, it becomes necessary to ask how pain and evil arise. 
pain and evil are either real or unreal. If they are real, then God, who, being omnipotent, was bound by no limitations and constrained by no necessities, willfully created them. But the being who willfully creates pain and evil cannot be benevolent. If they are unreal, then the error which we make when we think them real is a real error. There is no doubt that we believe we suffer. If the belief is erroneous, then it follows that God willfully called falsehood into existence and deliberately involved us in unnecessary error. It follows once again that God cannot be benevolent. If we regard pain and evil as due to the wickedness of man and not as the creation of God, we are constrained to remember that man himself is one of God's creations, God being conceived as all-creative and received his wickedness or his capacity for it from whom if we say that man had no wickedness to begin with but willfully generated wickedness for himself we have to face the double difficulty of accounting for a how man who is an emanation from god can will with a will of his own which is not also a piece of god's will and b how a benevolent god could, assuming pain and evil to be a purely human creation, deliberately allow them to be introduced into a world that knew them not, when it was open to him to prevent such introductions. C. E. M. Jode, Mind and Matter He had seen that crime and immorality exist now, just as they had existed before the belief in one personal God, and just as they promised to exist beyond our time. He had scrutinized evidence revealing the incontestable fact that most criminals were religious, and absolutely and proportionately a smaller number of criminals were non-believers in a personal deity. Judging by these alone, a belief in a benevolent, loving, omniscient, omnipotent, and compassionate being could not be sustained. Furthermore, if such a god ever existed, he certainly would have revealed his true religion to the first man, Adam. If he required prayer to satisfy his vanity, he surely would have told Adam how, when, why, and where to pray. Then again, once having neglected to inform his first model about all this, since he is omnipotent, he would certainly have instilled into the minds of men the true creed, so that no doubt could ever have entered into anyone's mind. What a universe of suffering he would have saved! The Martian is aware that a great number of earthlings hold that every event must have a cause. Therefore, the universe must have had a cause, which cause was God. Everything as it now exists in the universe is the result of an infinite series of causes and effects. Everything that happens is the result of something else that happened previously, and so on backwards to all eternity. Applying this reasoning that everything is the effect of some cause, and that a cause is the effect of some other causes, the theists work back from effect to cause and from cause to effect until they reach a first cause. By predicating a first cause, however, the theist removes the mystery a stage further back. This first cause, they assume, to be a cause that was not caused, and this first cause is God. Such a belief is a logical absurdity, and is an example of the ancient custom of creating a mystery 
to explain a mystery. If everything must have a cause, then the first cause must be caused, and therefore, who made God? To say that this first cause always existed is to deny the basic assumption of this theory. Moreover, if it is reasonable to assume a first cause as having always existed, why is it unreasonable to assume that the materials of the universe always existed? To explain the unknown by the known is a logical procedure. To explain the known by the unknown is a form of theological lunacy. The effect noted in any particular case is not of necessity related to a single cause, and science gives no assurance that causes and effects can be traced backward to a simple first cause. A man is so unfortunate as to contract pneumonia. What is the cause? An infection of the respiratory tract by the pneumococcus. It is not quite so simple as to ultimate causation. The person afflicted was harboring these germs in his nose and throat, and his resistance was weakened by wetting his feet. The day was cold and his shoes were thin. The humidity and temperature were such that rain fell. The temperature and humidity were caused by air currents hundreds of miles distant from the scene, and so ad infinitum. In this series of complications, where may we discern a first cause? When applied to the much more difficult problem of physical phenomena, we can conceive of an endless cycle of causes, but we cannot conceive of a first cause. Cause and effect are not two separate things. They are the same thing, viewed under two separate aspects. If cause and effect are the expressions of a relation, and if they are not two things, but only one, under two aspects, cause being the name for the related powers of the factors, and effect the name for their assemblage, to talk, as does the theist, of working back along the chain of causes until we reach God, is nonsense. Chapman Cohen, Theism or Atheism A great many theists attempt to deduce the existence of an invisible creator and ruler of the universe from the visible features of nature, such as the design, regularity of movement and structure, and the various aspects of beauty which one may find in studying natural objects. This argument from design in nature has been overruled by a study of the evolutionary processes. Paley based his argument on the assertion of a mind beyond phenomena, the workings of which could be seen in the forms of animal life. The theists no longer use Paley's original arguments, but a great deal of the theistic arguments are still based on his assumptions. From the humanistic point of view, and the theist bases his entire arguments from design in nature, from the humanistic view, an understanding of the merciless character of organic evolution shows clearly that the forces at work in nature are full of waste, there are numerous plans that are futile, there is an unrelenting preying of one form of life upon the other, and it is not always the higher form that is the victor. There are myriads of living organisms coming to life only to perish before reaching an age at which they can play their part in the perpetuation of the species. And there is a universe of pain and misery that serves no useful purpose. The impartial eye of science observes ugliness as well as beauty, disorder as well as order, in nature. 
If there is evidence of design in a rose, there is at least as much evidence of design in the tubercle bacillus and the tetanus bacillus. Whatever in nature produced the peacock produced the itch mite. Whatever produced man produced the spirochet of syphilis. If this earth is evolving for the better, the past is still vivid in all its cruelty. The old and familiar argument from design and beauty in nature is so inconsistent with the facts at hand that most theists have abandoned this attitude, and the retreat from this position has been turned into a veritable rout by the steady advance of scientific knowledge. God could, by exercising his omnipotence, reveal his existence with overpowering conviction at any moment, yet men have been searching for centuries for just the slightest evidence of his presence. The Martian, moreover, holds that the entire argument is irrelevant, for even if he grants that there is a supernatural being that fashions that which we behold at work in the universe, how can we say that he designed all this without first knowing what his intention was? Only by knowing the intention in the mind of a supernatural being before the act can we infer that something was designed. When the theist finds intention and design in nature, he is but reading his own feeling and desires into nature. Considering the universe as a whole, the Martian fails to find anything that suggests a conscious and purposive God, and certainly nothing to suggest a being that considers the welfare of man. The individual is not much interested in God as manifested in nature. What he is vainly seeking is God as providence. He is seeking an intelligence that his clergy tell him is devoted to his welfare, an intelligence that will guide his stumbling efforts, that will relieve him from war and misery, that will shield the innocent from pain and poverty. He finds that his clergy cannot point to one clear trace of the action of God in human affairs. In the whole long record of man's career, the finger of God cannot be found pointing to one well-substantiated fact. The Martian considers the theistic argument that it would be impossible to have an orderly universe merely resulting from the inherent properties of natural forces, and that directivity is necessary to keep the universe on its present track. Keeping in mind the scientific conception of the universe and the knowledge at hand concerning the atoms and their properties, it is inconceivable that any other arrangement than the present one should have resulted. The Martian cannot marvel, as most earthlings do, that the present order exists as it does. The marvel to him would be if any other order should be, or that any radical alteration in it should occur. He perceives that the state of the universe, at any moment, is the result of all the conditions then prevailing, and that the natural forces possess the capacity to produce the universe as we see it. It matters not what the ultimate nature of these forces may be, electrons, protons, electricity, or wave energy, these material forces possess the capacity to produce the universe as we see it. If these forces do not possess this capacity, it is indeed difficult for the Martian to conceive in what way even a directing and supreme mathematician, an ultimate, or any supernatural power, however designated, could produce this capacity. 
unless the capacity for producing the universe as we see it existed in the atoms themselves, no amount of direction could have produced it. The property of the atom and its combinations to produce the material universe is therefore inherent in the atoms themselves and does not necessitate the operation of a deity. The order manifest in the universe is the necessary consequence of the persistence of force. If a supernatural intelligent force existed, the Martian believes that the claims of the theist would in no way be better substantiated than if this controlling force would in some way manifest an inhibitive influence and prevent certain things occurring which would have transpired but for his interference. Such manifestations have not occurred. It is impossible for the theist to show any instance in which the normal consequences of known forces did not transpire in which the aberration could not be accounted for by the operation of other known forces. A law of nature is not a statute drawn up by a legislator. It is the interpretation and the summation which we give to the observed facts. The phenomena which we observe do not act in a particular manner because there is a law, but we state the law because they act in that particular manner. It cannot be said that the laws of nature are the result of a lawmaker. It cannot be affirmed that a supreme intelligence told things in nature to act just that way and no other. If the theist claims that a supreme intelligence issued laws for his own pleasure and without any reason, then he must admit that there is something which is not subject to law and the train of natural law is interrupted. If it is claimed that a supreme intelligence had a reason for the laws which he gave, the reason being to create the best possible universe, then it follows that God himself was subject to law and there is no advantage in introducing God as an intermediary. This contention would make it appear that there is a law outside and anterior to the divine edicts, and God does not serve the purpose of the theist since he is not the ultimate lawgiver. The anthropomorphic conception of God, our Martian finds, is now denied by most cultured theists. Nevertheless, they still maintain a belief in a deity endowed with consciousness. Professor H. N. Wieman states that God is superhuman but not supernatural. He is a present, potent, operative, observable reality. He is more worthy of love than any other beloved. He is one to whom men can pray and do pray and who answers prayer. This can be understood to be not greatly removed from the fundamentalist's conception of God. But when he continues to say, God is that interaction between individuals, groups, and ages which generates and promotes the greatest possible mutuality of good, and it responds to prayer and is precisely what answers prayer when prayer is answered, the personal he has suddenly changed to the impersonal it. Emotions and intelligence are connected with nerve structures in all sentient beings that we have experience and knowledge of. How can we attribute these qualities to a being who is described to us as devoid of any nerve structure? In former ages, the theist saw God in the color and construction of a flower, in the starry heavens, and in a sunset or sunrise. 
The biologists have driven the theists from this misconception. The physicists have explained the phenomena of sunset and sunrise, and with the advance of astronomy, the heavens no longer proclaim the glory of God, and the theistic arguments have shifted from worlds to atoms. At the present moment, the vision of God has narrowed down to a perception of the divine intelligence noted in the design of the atom. Astronomy, physics, geology, chemistry, medicine, psychology, ethics, aesthetics, and the social sciences have left no room for a theistic explanation of the universe. The mystics who proclaim God in their intuitive trances are being crowded out into the light of reason by the researches of psychologists. There are still many gaps in our knowledge, and if the theist persists in finding the manifestation of a supreme being in these vague zones of our present ignorance, he is at the mercy of the science of the future. Science is concerned with mind as much as it is with the material aspects of atoms and stars, hence the sciences of psychology, ethics, and aesthetics. The entire universe is the province of science and it is rapidly providing a scientific interpretation of all the contents of the universe. It may well be a few more centuries before the scientific explanation is partially complete, but it must be kept in mind that science as we conceive the term is less than 2,500 years old, and out of this infantile period at least a thousand years must be deducted for the intellectual stagnation of the Dark Ages. In tracing the retreat of the clergy from the arguments from the first cause, the arguments from design, causation, and directivity, the Martian recalls the words of Vivian Phillips. How is it that God allowed earnest and learned divines to commit themselves to arguments in proof of his existence, the subsequent overthrow of which has been a potent cause for unbelief? The finite mind cannot expect to understand the infinite, retorts a theist to our Martian. What manner of reasoning is this, asks our Martian, that denies my finite mind the right to question the proofs of the existence of an infinite, when these same proofs are derived by finite minds? The theist cannot infer God from the cosmic process until he can discover some feature of it which is unintelligible without him. 2. The belief in a deity, but the rejection of revelations, theology, priestcraft, and church. To the Martian, the opinion held by these individuals presented two difficulties. First, if the adherents of this hypothesis considered their deity as a providence which took an active part in the life of this world, then the objections heretofore stated against belief in a personal god are still valid. Secondly, if they considered this being as only a creator, who then leaves this world to its own resources, they are only assuming a philosophical existence behind phenomena. Such a being, they believe, they deduce intellectually. But actually who created this creator? They assume a god who remains always hidden behind phenomena, but such a god has no connection with the god that the religious man worships and to whom he prays for guidance and for blessings, for actual interference in the life of this world. 
Such theories impress our visitor as but a feeble attempt at new concepts of the same hypothetical deity, and it seemed to him that we already had sufficient ideas of God to trouble our earthly minds. 3. The God of the Physicists it was brought to the Martians' attention that two scientists, Sir Arthur Eddington, a British astronomer, and Sir James Jeans, a mathematical physicist, had still another concept of God. According to Eddington, phenomena all boil down to a scheme of symbols, of mathematical equations. He admits that this mathematics of nature does not explain anything. They do not define reality, they only define the relations that exist between the phenomena of reality. So far does he go, and then his limited mind, our Martian perceives, meets an obstacle that he cannot explain. He, therefore, abandons the formula and returns to the human mind which has conceived this formula. From the spiritual essence of man's nature, he assumes the spiritual nature of the cosmos itself, which he finds in what religion has known for centuries as God. To him, it is impossible to explain the universe except in terms of spirit. Professor Jeans insists that, in the equations which reveal the relations between phenomena, there may reside also the revelation of the ultimate, which these phenomena express. He believes that there may exist a great architect of the universe who is a pure mathematician. However, the Martian argues, Is it not a fact that in your earthly experience you have created your gods in your own image? Your savages created God in the only fashion their mental capacities could supply, in the shape of an idol. Now the modern physicist creates his God in the light of his own intimate vision, which is that of a mathematician. This is just another attempt to formulate a hypothetical existence of a supernatural being. The theologians, by this time thoroughly aroused, lay down a verbal barrage, and learned Jesuits place before the visitor a recent publication entitled The Question and Answer by Hilaire Belloc. The author, acting as the mouthpiece of the Roman Catholic Church, attempts to prove two things, namely, whether God is, and that the witness to revelation is the Roman Catholic Church. Were it not for the fact that the work was published by permission of the Church, one could logically suppose from its arguments that the author was attempting to give the answer no to the question propounded as to whether God is. There is one sentence, however, to which the Martian agrees. This one. But religions, though not very numerous, considering the vast spaces of time over which we can study them, and the vast number of millions to which they apply, differ and contradict each other, on which account anyone approaching this problem for the first time, and being made acquainted at the outset with the variety of religions, would naturally conclude that every religion is man-made, and every religion an illusion. On reading the opening remarks, the Martian exclaims, This earthling plainly tells us at the beginning that he will make his theories fit in with his conclusion. He informs us that he does not seek the truth no matter where it may lead, but he only deems it necessary to fit ideas, no matter how distorted, in order that the final conclusion will simulate what he deliberately sets out to prove. Mr. Belloc's statement, 
how many men will agree that wanton cruelty, treason to family or the state, falsehood for private gain, breach of faith, are admirable? Strikes the Martian as absurd when viewed in the light of the historical annals of the church itself. Mr. Belloc's creed must have considered those very vices as virtues, judging from the actions of his church. In calling the Roman Catholic Church the witness to Revelation, the author continues with, Yet that it should suffer from men's hatred and persecution. If God has divinely ordained this institution as his church on earth, and in his omnipotence and omniscience allows this church to be hated, then how do the religionists assume that their God is a God of love? The author tells us that he is a God of hate, such a God as was conceived of by the barbarians and the Hebrews, cruel, vengeful, and monstrous. Does not this apologist confuse his God with his devil? Then again, has it not occurred to this apologist that he is in all futility attempting to prove something which is a contradiction within itself? If God is, and is benevolent, is it not logical to assume, since the theologians assume all sorts of attributes to this deity, that he would not have constructed the minds of men when he created them so as to desire to doubt his being, would not have tortured the minds of men with cruel doubt as to his existence? If he is omnipotent, it would have been just as easy to instill into the minds of men only the strongest desire to believe in his reality. And even that would not be necessary had he so arranged matters that by his everlasting presence he would reveal himself or his deeds to man in such a conclusive manner that even the feeblest of intellects could not doubt his existence. If he is omniscient, as the parable asserts, that not a hair falls from the head of man, not a sparrow dies without his knowledge, it must therefore be apparent that he created man with the foreknowledge that man would doubt his existence. This is a contradiction in itself. The Martian notes that in the entire length of the work not a reference is made to the time-worn theological defense, the revelation, which the Church has always claimed for its scriptures. Appended as an afterthought, as an apology, as it were, for the philosophical defense and not the theological, the Jesuit father reminds the reader of its Messiah, Jesus and the New Testament. The Jesuit states, The New Testament writings, considered merely as trustworthy historical documents, inform us that... But at this point the Martian interrupted the speaker, for the audacity of any learned man terming the New Testament writings historical was beyond his comprehension. It brought forcibly to his attention the great change which the apologies for the church had undergone and the new methods which they assumed. The old theological defense of the deity was gone. Not even philosophy was deemed strong enough support for the present day. How the church had fallen... The church, which had persecuted, anathematized, burned and tortured the scientist, the geologist, the astronomer, the geographer, the biologist, the chemist, and the physician, this same church, in its last extremis, casts aside theology as its weapon and its appeal to the minds of the skeptics whom they aim to convert. 
The church casts aside its own theology, having learned by bitter experience and recanting of opinions, bulls, and infallible statements by infallible popes, and now succumbs to the opinions it has formerly anathematized. In the present age, the church calls science to its aid and utterly disregards its obsolete theology which it still practices and attempts, by means of the misinterpretation of scientific facts and statements of a few men such as Eddington and Jeans, to force science into some illogical and unscientific concordance with the conception of a supreme being. Ironically, it occurs to the Martian that the shades of Hypatia, Bruno, Galileo, Copernicus, Vanini, Darwin, and the vast numbers of Waldenses, Albigenses, Huguenots, Jews, and the victims of the Inquisition and the witch-hunt must, as they contemplate the present tactics of that holy institution, the Church, find some consolation in the depths of that hell to which the Church consigned them. The Martian logically deduces that by employing science for its defense, the Church admits the impotence of divine revelation. In this age, to convince even its own adherents of the problematical existence of a divine being. Theology is no longer recognized as authoritative, even by theologians. Will the theologians now disregard their theology based on the supernatural, and build a system of theology based on science? Is this all that is left to the theologian, that he must use the pitiful theology of gaps? That is, wherever there are gaps in scientific knowledge, the theologians insert their idea of God. This is but the replacing of the question mark with a meaningless label. End of chapter 4